Some of you who know me are probably expecting some big emotional intro thing about how significant Chrono Trigger was when it entered my life, but if I'm being completely honest, Chrono Trigger just kind of stumbled into my life. At the time, I was still very much immersed in Final Fantasy VI and a couple of other games like Mega Man X1 and Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. So unlike a lot of other games I could mention, like FF4 or Mega Man 2 or Super Mario Bros. 1, I, I didn't have some big, like, this was super important to me and it was this big significant moment in my life thing. When Chrono Trigger came out... However, some of you may or may not be aware that I once did a level 1 TAS of Chrono Trigger, which I'm still very proud of. It's one of the very few works I've done I'm legitimately happy with even though I wish I could go back and do it better, because I made a few mistakes along the way. And um, the significance of that is that, for those of you who haven't watched that test, please go watch the test. I spent a lot of time on it. Um, I didn't think it was possible. I actually thought I was going to reach a point where it was just going to be a death. There were ways around that, but they would involve doing a whole lot of extra stuff. that would literally have added hours to the run, so I was just, eh. I was just going to go ahead and accept the death. And then I got to Lavos, and then I beat him. Now that is, of course, a huge summary of the events. I quite literally, and without exaggeration, spent three weeks mapping out, planning, trying, and working on the battle with Lavos. That probably sounds ridiculous, but trust me, if you're level one, that guy is a little bit harder than usual, and his mechanics are uniquely suited to crush the ever-living crap out of you when you're low level. But I did it. And it happened at a point in my time where I was really, really suicidal, because this was right before uh, the health issues the kidney and the kidney stone issues and I was in tremendous pain uh, a lot of my life and I was having trouble functioning and I was having trouble keeping going and being able to pull that kind of a win out of that well that was a hell of a morale boost in ways that I am underselling because I don't want to spend too much time on this topic Chrono Trigger having stumbled into my life has been an absolutely amazing part of my life ever since and a lot of that is on the virtue of just how incredibly well designed it is. It doesn't have, other than New Game Plus, it didn't really introduce anything new to the genre or to the, or to game design or to story design or anything like that. But what it did was it polished everything to a sheen. There are flaws in this game and there are issues in this game, but most of them are relatively local or, or small little issues here and there. Nitpicks, if you will. This game is very tightly crafted, very dense, relatively short, and brilliant. <sighs> One of the things I want to talk about as well, I'm not going to be, this is going to be probably my weirdest rumination I've ever did, because mentally I basically approach this like a lore run. Uh, usually when I do a rumination, I go through a game and I just, I have like a section for gameplay notes, a section for story notes, and usually a third section for character notes, and I just kind of divvy that up. But here I just kind of went through the game linearly, and so we will actually be discussing gameplay and story elements throughout the course of this rumination, rather than our usual divvying up thing. So, uh, a couple of initial thoughts before we really get into the game proper. I love the manually crafted design of this place. There's no random encounters. Instead, what we have is enemies that you fight on the overworld, and it's like, hey, you know, you fight this thing. Oh, I just realized I need to address one other thing really quick. Please forgive me. Yes, this is my second rumination on Chrono Trigger. Like another rumination, which I believe at this point has already gone live, uh, Dragon Age Origins, this was one of the requested ruminations by my patrons over on Patreon to do a proper remake of the rumination. So I will be doing my best to give you the best rumination that I can, because Lord knows the old one was terrible and awful. So here, here's to that. Anyways, 
back to the manually crafted thing. With the manually crafted approach, I've, I'm always in favor of manually crafted over procedurally generated or randomly designed. That's, that's something I've been in favor of for many years in my life at this point. And what this means is every single encounter, all of them, 100% of them, are specifically designed to be fought at a point in time with a relative power level you're supposed to have and with a presumed party makeup that you're supposed to have. So all of these encounters, and I'll be discussing a few specifics as we go through, but all of these encounters are basically engineered to encourage you to think in a certain way, to reward you for bringing certain party members, to try and push your envelope as far as the tactics you're using, or to try and encourage you to diversify in order to try and you know, get through specific strategies. It's brilliant in its own way. And there's another thing that this game does very well. It has the overwhelming majority of encounters can be skipped. You can just bypass them. Now, you have to use bugs to get past several bosses, but you can't do that. I'm not counting that. I mean, as you roam around the overall map, there's basically a certain series of pixels on the overall map that are red. Okay, this is just presumed. And anytime you step on a red tile, that encounter is triggered. However, if you know where those are, you can just skip them. And the overwhelming majority of skippable encounters are easy to skip when playing live. Not at speedrunner level, not at task level, just some person sitting down playing normally. Now that is a very important element to the design of Chrono Trigger. And I'll, I'll be mentioning another reason why that is in just a second. Um, it also... They, they also have this approach to areas, so the game is actually quite linear up to a certain point, at which point it opens up, but there's an open design to it. Right at the beginning, you can go to the fair, anywhere in Truce, Truce Castle, though you can't do much there, the nearby forest, the bridge, the other town, that would be uh, Poor. You can go down to Poor, you can take the, the ferry, and I think that's about everything. But that is a surprisingly large amount of stuff you can do right at the beginning of the game. And let's just look at my notes here, because I jotted several of these down here. So, <clears throat> you learn a whole lot of information if you really run around and talk to everyone. So the first thing that happens is you can talk to your mother twice. Now that sounds like a very minor point, but it helps to encourage the player to talk to NPCs multiple times. In Chrono Trigger specifically, most NPCs will say different things at least twice. Sometimes three times, sometimes more. But in general, just about everyone says something different after certain events have happened. And this is the very quiet way of the game encouraging you, the player, to, oh yeah, by the way, this is a thing for new players to the franchise. Remember, this is the SNES era, this is the 90s, where talking to NPCs multiple times was something that only weirdos like me did. <laughs> Any other weirdos out there who used to talk to NPCs a bunch? I'm just curious. So, then you go and you can hit the nearby inn, where the f there's two bits of information, well, you, three bits. You learn about the fair very early on. Lots of people talk about the fair and its significance, so you get some exposition through that. But you also learn there's been earthquakes recently, which is actually a tease for the fact that the Day of Lavos is coming. Then you see a chest in the upper right, and anybody who has any kind of visual acumen will notice that chest and say, well, that doesn't fit. It actually uses a slightly different palette, not literally, but functionally a different palette from the, all the other things in the area. It uses the 12,000 BC palette. Now, it's not literally a different palette, but you know what I mean. And so it looks different, it looks standoutish, and if you t interact with it, you get a little musical thing. Like, da -da -na 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 -na. 
just kind of cementing it there in your mind. And you'll see several of these as you go throughout the game. And because of that initial one, or whichever one you encounter first, it kind of sticks in your brain so that much, 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 much later, you kind of remember, oh yeah, now I can open those things when you finally see that interaction. Anyways, moving on. Um, you go to the noob house where you can learn about all the basic stuff. A funny little side note. Back in the day, noob houses were a lot more common feature in RPGs. Uh, Final Fantasy 4, 5, 6, and 7 all had noob houses. 8 kind of started moving away from that. Chrono Trigger, of course, has a noob house as well. They're, these are not the only exceptions it's, or examples. I just find it funny because people kind of stopped doing noob houses. I guess uh, video game concepts and RPG concepts have just become so common we don't really need them as much as we used to. Anyways... Um, so you can go all the way around town where you learn all sorts of information that I already kind of discussed. You can go to the bridge. I don't even realize you could go to the bridge for some time where you can see people who are on their way from poor to go to the fair. Uh, you can go to poor, as I mentioned previously. And from poor, you can learn several little tidbits. First of all, that there was a forest to the north that, that was trying to be restored by this woman named Fiona, but for some reason it failed. Um, you learn about the fact that there's a guy here who sells jerky for an insane amount of money, at least at the time. You learn that some monsters can coexist with regular people. You learn about the rich mayor. You learn about, um, excuse me, you learn about Fritz and how he's missing still. You learn about the whirlpool that occasionally shows up. You learn about the fiend lord war and how this is in part a celebration of that. You learn about Lara, Luca's mother, who is a cripple, as the fact that she won't, can't and won't move. You learn the, about Melkor, and you learn about Beckler. Now, anybody who knows this game can recognize how many of those points come back up later on in the game. The amount of foreshadowing that's designed in the very few, that you can all access right off the bat at the very beginning of the game, is actually kind of crazy. Now, this is a very common thing in Chrono Trigger. Because of the aforementioned tight design, and because of the fact that this game is designed with New Game Plus in mind, which I'll talk about later, you, all of this stuff kind of is one of the benefits of that. I'm going to take a segue here for a moment, as I'm, I've been praising the intro of the game, to talk about how this game was a kind of a Jurassic Park. Uh, to explain what I mean by that, in my experience, in my opinion, there are two kinds of really successful works, regarding uh, books, movies, games, television, right? The first is something where everything just kind of bumbled into place, and no one predicted it would be this big success, and no one thought it would be a smash hit, and then it was. This is Star Wars, to, to put it simply. Uh, Star Wars A New Hope, which just kind of bumbled its way into massive success, despite not really having what you would consider all of the pieces in place. The other thing is when all of the pieces just slot in perfectly, and anyone looking at that could say, this is going to be a masterpiece, and then it was. And with all of the pieces in place, excellent people working at every step, at every part of the procedure, so you've got this this tight lattice design of interactive uh, creative works, all uh, creative people all working together to create this work, you have Jurassic Park, where it, you know, which is what like I mentioned. Chrono Trigger is a Jurassic Park. Everyone talks about the dream team, but even ignoring the, the big four, or big three, if, depending on how you define that, this was a confluence of a lot of different things. The, hell, the very reason Chrono Trigger came into being is because some guys, who were technically rivals at the time, got together and said, hey, you know what would be cool is if we did a game like, like that was about time travel. Oh, that sounds kind of neat. And they just kind of started kibitzing about it over the course of several days and then weeks and then months, and then they actually got some producers on board, and then they actually got some directors on board, and they just kind of kept pulling in talent. And it's easy to see, with the advantage of hindsight, why so many people wanted to work on this, because a lot of people worked on this game. Because you had 
again, the dream team. That was like the star power of all these people who were like, we really just want to make a great game. We don't want to make a Final Fantasy. We don't want to make a Dragon Quest. Um... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail at this. Yuji Hori, Yuji Hori, excuse me, is one of the, the, the gentlemen who spoke at length about the idea that they were untethered. Like there were certain expectations at the time for what was required to make a particular game, to make an RPG, to make a Dragon Quest, or to make a Final Fantasy. All those expectations were gone. It was a blank sheet of paper. Now that can be a bad thing. If you have no limitations, that can, that can be a very damaging thing creatively. But because they had so many people who were so creatively talented and were all driven to just make the best game they could in a vacuum, we got Chrono Trigger. This is also a good time to mention that I will not be discussing or really even mentioning Radical Dreamers or Chrono Cross. Not because they're bad, not because I dislike them. None of that is relevant. What is relevant is the fact that Chrono Trigger, as I just kind of highlighted, was made in a vacuum. It was designed to be a self-contained game. It was just supposed to be this one great game. They weren't trying to make an IP, they weren't trying to develop a franchise, and they weren't thinking about tomorrow. Uh, I will discuss this uh, next week or last week, I forget which, when it comes to another rumination that I'll be doing, uh, and why I will not be discussing other works in that one, because it, it wasn't designed with the other works in mind. It was the same actual issue with uh, Dragon Age Origins, now that I think about it. <sighs> another thing I want to talk about here is there's a huge number of skippable actions in this game. Remember all that stuff I mentioned as far as all the side stuff you could do right at the beginning? All of that is optional. You know what you have to do? You have to go to the fair, go to the top area of the fair, um, bump into Marl, get her pendant back to her, go down, talk to one NPC, go up, talk to Luca, talk to Marl, that's it. And then you're back in 680. That's all that's required. Chrono Trigger, if you're not listening to me here, has basically did the next best thing to adding skippable cutscenes in the SNES era. Because an overwhelming amount of stuff is just completely bypassable on replete playthroughs. Now, this is important because, as I mentioned before, this game has New Game Plus. And you don't really... Like, imagine if for a moment if all the stuff I talked about, talking about all the people and all the things in all of Poor and all of Truce, imagine if all of that was mandatory. And I bet that's not hard for you to imagine because you've probably played a JRPG or two or three where that kind of thing was mandatory. Where in order to progress, you had to go through this cutscene and had to talk to this guy and had to go through this cutscene, etc. But it's not. And thus, Chrono Trigger never bogs itself down. The amount of actions that are required to progress in this game are incredibly minimalistic. And you can't tell me that's not by design. Another thing that's interesting about this game, and this is more interesting for people who are doing low-level runs and challenge runs or speed runs of this game, is the fact that Chrono Trigger is astonishingly predictable. What I mean by that is in a game like, I'll use another game that I know fairly well, Final Fantasy VI, if you swing at someone, you will do like 436 damage. But if you, uh, you know, if you wait two more frames, it'll do like 487 damage. If you wait three more frames, it might do 460 damage, and so forth and so on. In Chrono Trigger, that, that type of RNG doesn't exist. Instead, you will do X damage, which is always absolutely a, a straight mathematical formula. Your, your attack power multiplied by any variables, which are all very static and understandable, usually buffs and stuff like that, minus their armor equals damage done. So if you swing on an enemy, at any point in time in this fight, it will always do the same 75 damage, or if you crit, you know, 140 or whatever. Now, that also is 
it means that you can kind of predict when certain events happen. And I don't want to get too much into the, the gameplay mechanics of this, because that's usually not the focus of Ruminations. If you want to hear more about the mechanics of how this game works, again, I have a level 1 TAS-up where I discuss it at length for like 7 hours. <laughs> what? It's a level 1 task. Now, um, another interesting thing about this game is that most people look at Chrono Trigger and think of this game as incredibly easy. And that is absolutely true, presuming certain circumstances. When I was going back through this game, I was actually riding the orange line. Now, to explain what I mean by that, I was dodging most encounters, which meant that I was generally under-leveled. You know, you got the red line, the orange line, the yellow line, which is at level for challenge, then the green line, which is overpowered, and then the gray line, which is where you're just stomping everything in your, in your path. So I was riding the orange line, and it was actually a fairly challenging game. There were several bosses that actually gave me issues. And I mention that, because this is not the first or last square game that I've looked at that has exactly that feature to it. If you're doing everything at level, it's fairly easy. If you push yourself or challenge yourself, it suddenly becomes significantly harder. <laughs> it's one of those weird things. I bet most people don't even know most of the mechanics of the Dragon Tank fight, for example, or of the RY series, you know, pseudo-boss fight, because those mechanics are things you can usually bypass by just killing them quickly. But if you're not killing them quickly, well, then they hurt and they cause you a lot of issues. Anyways, I mention that because that whole writing the orange line thing is something that I like when a game designs that. In other words, it's the next best thing to actual difficulty selection. Um, <laughs> make of that what you will. I mean, I prefer an actual difficulty slider, but the, the fact that you can just bypass enemies in order to increase the difficulty is something I like, or you can bypass enemies because this is your 13th time playing through the game. Which brings me to my next point of how this game is easy. Items are cheap. It is extremely easy very early in the game. Like, at, at the absolute latest, the first time you hit 2300 AD, it is very easy to max out your number of potions. And unlike in, say, FF6, to continue the parallels, maxing out your potions isn't something that you'll be done with within, like, three dungeons, because potions are crap over in FF6. No, over here, potions are, like, half or a third of a full heal, and you can get 99 of them very early on. Even shelters are relatively easy and cheap to get. I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out that the game gives you these options in order to make things relatively easy. Uh, this is probably a good time to talk about the alternate leveling style. Now, most of the older games have fairly linear alternate leveling methods. You've got your, your standard horizontal, or excuse me, your standard vertical leveling, your level, your experience, and then you've got the standard horizontal leveling, which is your equipment, and then you usually have one alternate leveling method, like, um, you know, the, the classes in five, the uh, Magicite in 6, the Materia in 7, and here it's the techs, and the ability to get tech points and using techs. Now, this is all fairly basic level, but I found myself thinking something as I was going back through this game. I'm not going to name names, but there's another game that I've been pseudo-playing recently where you've got your level, your equipment, your equipment's level, your equipment's unlock point, your gem level, <laughs> your sync level, your alternate abilities, right? And that's actually a fairly mild example of that. I really feel that too many modern uh, JRPGs, most notably within the last 10 years or so, don't really understand that they don't have to have an incredibly convoluted leveling system. Especially since many of these leveling systems kind of aren't really interesting. Like, like, at least to me. This is purely opinion, of course. And I don't want to name specific names. But I can think of several, and I'm sure you can too, where you can do X, Y, Z, A, B, 3, 10, and 5 in order to customize your character. But you don't really feel like you're customizing your character because all of these things only change your character in minor ways. 
So it's like you're adjusting the slider like a couple steps up or a couple steps down, to stretch the analogy. And I don't really feel like I'm customizing anything there. To use a direct parallel, one of my favorite alternate, alternate leveling systems, which is Materia in 7, you feel like if you re-equip and readjust that Materia, you are significantly changing your playstyle. Like, the fact that Materia, for example, if you load down Barrett with tons and tons of summon and magic Materia, his ability to be a physical capacitor in terms of taking damage or dealing physical damage goes down significantly. But his ability to do magic goes up. And so you can specify who does what and how people are designed. I like that. And I like that in Chrono Trigger 2. It's not exactly the best system ever. It is fairly basic. But the basic mechanic is acceptable because the game is designed around it. As I mentioned earlier, uh, positioning and design of all of the manually crafted encounters means every single encounter is built for whatever they think you should or could do at any given point in time. And this becomes more and more apparent the more you go through the game. Unlike some games where they designed the early stuff very well and the later stuff falls off. Oh, no, 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 no. But pretty much by the time you get the epoch and start heading out, you have tons and tons of, of, of in different encounters which are interesting and well-designed and varied and awesome. My personal favorite boss in the entire game is the last boss, which is very rare for me. And the Retinite is probably the second one. The Retinite is actually a brilliantly designed boss, if you really analyze it. Now, <laughs> that... I, I, I say this so much. It's about how you use game mechanics, not just the game mechanics themselves. So yes, Chrono Trigger is basic, but everything it does, it is designed around that basic system. Positioning is a big one, too. For the longest time, one of my minor complaints about Chrono Trigger has been the fact that I have no control over my positioning. I feel the same way about Final Fantasy X-2, for example. In both games, positioning and distance and, and layout does matter. It does change your strategy. But you have no real control over positioning, so you're just kind of adjusting to whatever you happen to deal with. My complaint still exists for Chrono Trigger, but has been lessened because of how much I noticed this playthrough that... Again, the layout, the specific positioning of enemies is designed to encourage you in a certain way. Let me use a direct example, and I'll move on. When you first go to Minoria Cathedral in 600 AD, there are two Naga Ets, and both of them start here. Now, they start in a way that the first thing you can do is you can hit three of them if you do a Cyclone, but then they almost immediately shift away from that until two of them are focusing on Luca and two of them are focusing on Chrono. Now, here's the really interesting thing. If you take down, like if one of your people starts getting down or hurt or whatever, the other two kind of stop being quite as much of a problem. And because you're still using, uh, because of their positioning, Flamethrower will still hit two here, and uh, the Cyclone will still hit two wherever you choose to hit it. So you still have the ability to choose that based on the party members they know you will have at that point in time. This is probably a good time to add a disclaimer. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, Chrono Trigger seems to be the game that people most argue about pronunciation in. I, I mean, I've, I've seen arguments in many different fictional works, but never as much as Chrono Trigger. It's probably because we've never had voice acting in this franchise of any sort. Thus, we, have, we don't really have a lot of official sources for pronunciation. So, this is my disclaimer. I'm going to use the pronunciations I always have, and I apologize if it bothers you. I do understand. Let's talk about the sprite work. The sprite work in this game is phenomenal. I know that some people have kind of gotten into the meme joke of me being the brick runner and constantly pointing out bricks, but 
part of that is because of my appreciation for little details in art design. And there are several games that really always just shine when it comes to the kind of details and effort they put into designing a particular area. Final Fantasy VI, World of Warcraft, Chrono Trigger, etc. Now, I point out this one because, and I'm going to use a direct parallel because I jotted this down. So, <clears throat> Chrono's room includes a model ship, a typewriter, a lamp, pictures, and a radio. And if you go down to the kitchen, you see... A fridge, a sink, a stove, a pantry, dishes, and a clock. Now, all of that in very quick... I bet most of you probably never even noticed half that stuff. At least not consciously. But it gives a very quick background presentation of this is a normal everyday home. And a normal everyday modern home. Despite the fact that they still have a king and a castle and still use swords, 1000 AD is basically about the 1950s slash 1980s-ish in terms of overall technolo technological progression. And I say overall because obviously Luke is just completely pushing the boundaries of that since she has literally made a talking robot and a teleporter. But I, I digress. The point being that, that that is trying to give you that automatic sense of familiarity effect because you know what a fridge is, and you know what a stove is, and you see all those. Now, to skip forward a little bit in the narrative, when you go back to 600 AD for the first time, and you go into the inn, which, by the way, is very interestingly designed to be the very first place you will walk to if you're just walking normally for the first time of this game out of the canyon, you will see another kitchen, which has basic shelves, as in, like, just long bookshelf kind of shelves, a barrel, bags of food... A, uh, a pot, which is literally simmering on an open fire, and a crude stone fireplace. Again, immediate visual distinction. This is actually something the game does constantly, and I noticed it each time, and I love it each time, and I'm just going to skip over it really quick, but basically, each time you shift timelines, each timeline is very clearly visually distinct from previous ones in terms of the palettes that are used, uh, as in which colors and which... Uh, styles of artwork are huge in terms of some of the filters and in terms of the literal design of the actual areas you walk into. It's always very obvious when you are in a different time in this game because each one was designed to be so distinct from each other. I'll only bring up the timeline thing two more times, both of which times I feel it to be significant to the story. But otherwise, I just want to mention that every time you do that, it's, it's awesome. Moving on. So, you have to bump into Marl. Now, I actually like that in its own weird way. Uh, the whole idea is that you, the character, the player, basically have to initiate this encounter. And this also kind of leads to part of the trial. I'll talk more about the trial later. Uh, but what I do want to talk about is some aspects of the fair. Now, the fair has a fairly large amount of stuff to do, relatively speaking. I already discussed all of the uh, foreshadowing aspects of the fair. The fact that Melkor is there is just mind-boggling to me on, on repeat playthroughs. But what's really interesting to me about the fair is that so much of it is not just completely optional, but seemingly pointless. What's the, what's the point of getting silver points? Well, you can turn silver points into gold. And I actually know players, uh, friends of mine who used to play this game back when it came out, who would farm silver points to get gold because Melkor sells a sword that he's not, that you're not really supposed to have until about two hours ahead of now, game time wise. And you can actually farm up the necessary silver points and gold to get that right now if you feel like it. And that's up to you. I don't know. If you want to ride the green line, you can, because the game lets you. So you go find the teleporter pod, which is... <laughs> wow. <laughs> the, the fact that Luca has developed a working teleporter is astonishing. Now, there's this little side note that always bothered me until I really started analyzing the story of the game. One of the little side notes is that Luca's inventions usually fail. 
they usually explode. Now, that just kind of struck me as weird because we never see that in this game. We are always told that. And given that Chrono Trigger is usually very big on showing, not telling, that was confusing to me until I realized the point. Or at least, this is my theory on the matter. Because it's a twofold point. Point one is that she is, shall we say, um, crazy. <laughs> no, I don't mean she's insane. I don't mean she's mentally unbalanced. I mean she is willing to push far harder than she should. The reason so much of her stuff fails is because she is way more ambitious than she should be and is willing to push the envelope far harder than she otherwise should. And thus, most of her experiments fail because she is constantly pushing that boundary, learning and, and recovering from it, and then pushing the boundaries back again. This is probably why she has a freaking functioning teleporter. Which, of course, brings me to my next reason for thinking this. Very shortly into the development of this game, uh, development, sorry, very shortly into the story of this game, she develops a the time gate which can trigger the time things. Now that's basically her first real working invention. And I point that out because it's significant because the next thing she encounters is the future with computers and lots of information and a working robot, a working sentient sapient robot. Named Promethe I mean named Robo. Now, I have posited this theory many, many times, and I stand by this theory to this very day. I have always thought that the reason that the technological boom that happened in Chrono Trigger happened because Luca, in the future, analyzed these designs and then took that information and knowledge back with her and then really started making some truly advanced technology, truly pushing the envelope and thus leading to a technological renaissance, more or less literally because of time travel shenanigans and... Not, to, dis not to, to give her less credit, because she is smart enough to recognize it and understand it, and smart enough and wise enough to be able to apply it, applied engineering. <sighs> Anyways, <clears throat> I've got a thing of water right here. I can't, but you can't imagine why. So you go to the past. The game pulls the trigger on the past thing very quickly. Now this is when I'm going to mention something. It's very clear, and based on what we know, this is true, uh, although I don't have 100% certainty of this, that the early parts of the game, which is basically everything from when you first time travel up until when you come back from 600 AD, doesn't quite fit the rest of the game in terms of its storytelling and design. In fact, if not for this one exclusion, most of the time travel in the first half of the game would actually be very coherent and well-designed. However, this actually introduces a bit of a plot hole in terms of its approach to time travel. Now, I will discuss more about the specifics of the time travel and the way it works later because I feel it's far more relevant later. I just wanted to bring that up right now because I, I really do think this is just an example of, well, we did this part and then we started and then more people got involved and we added on to it and the rest of it's far more cohesive. It's early installment weirdness, basically, except within a single game. Anyways, so first you have your first forced encounter. This is also the only encounter in the entire game that Chrono cannot avoid getting experience on. It is the only time Chrono will ever get experience that is absolutely mandatory to complete the game. Hence the level 1 Chrono run. <laughs> so you have that forced encounter, but then your next encounter is pseudo-skippable, and your next encounter after that is extremely skippable. This is the game kind of giving you, the player, the idea that you can avoid encounters. The two guys who are just rolling the roly-poly back and forth are one of the most obvious examples that I've ever seen. Because their only purpose there is to show that they're just kind of hanging out and not in any way blocking your path or even being threatening to you. Thus, 
you understand, at least if you're playing this game for the first time, that you can just walk around them, and now you know that you can skip encounters. So you go to 680, I already mentioned the kitchen comparison, uh, the FX, the palette, the, um, the different sentence structure for how people talk, and their different vocabulary. Now, that wasn't true in the SNES version. If it's not obvious, I was going through the DS version uh, for this particular playthrough because it's the best version of the game, in my opinion. And the new sentence structure is, in my opinion, one of the better aspects of 600 AD. Because it's nothing particularly prosy, but it is kind of leaning in a prosy fashion. And they do use a slightly different vocabulary than everyday English. And it's all still fairly understandable, but the point is it still gives it that very distinct flavor to feel like you've gone to a different time, rather than people who are just talking everyday normal English casually and, and as if nothing happened. So, um, I mentioned here most early battles lean on positioning. That's very true. Uh, everyone mentions that Marl looks like Queen Lean. If I'm being honest, this is probably one of the aspects of the game that's kind of, eh? Because one of the things that Chrono Trigger does that I don't like is that it tries to connect the points between the time periods a little too closely. The fact that Marl looks like Lean, the fact that the Sunstone grows at the same rate across time periods, the fact that there's someone who is a obvious hint to being an ancestor to Luca, even though this is 400 years before Luca, etc., etc. That complaint aside, um... <laughs> I say here in my notes, this is the last time I'll mention the skippables, but this is another example of lots and lots of skippables when you get to 680. There's a lot of information you can get from the inn about the missing queen. If this is your first time you see Toma, who will be significant for most of the rest of the game to some extent or another. Uh, this is when you find out about the war against the Fiend Lord, which is currently going on, and they're currently losing, which I remind you, the previous fair, which you've already seen, was in a celebration of its success. Um, you can go to the castle, you can find out about more about Cyrus, you can learn about the little personal story between the knight captain and his brother, the head chef, the master of kitchens. I point that out because one of the other things that I will not be doing every individual point as we go through this, Chrono Trigger is really kind of more suited for a lower than a rumination, is that there are a lot of little personal stories throughout the entire game like the Knight Commander and like the Master of Kitchens. both They're brothers, and they both have a huge rivalry and feud going on. Both obviously love each other, and both are doing the best they can in order to support their people with their own things. It, it, there's a lot implied in this game, which it does a very good job of. It's probably one of the better SNES RPGs that I've ever seen, as in the concept of the SNES RPG, not the obvious fact that it's an RPG on the SNES. Um, so, we find Marl... Uh, lots of stuff is there. Oh yeah, we also learned about the Chancellor. Uh, we learned about some gossip. Uh, the fact that there might be an affair going on. Uh, the uh, Oh yeah, lots of people assume that you, Cronor, are having an affair with Queen Lean, which I find funny, because by all accounts, Cyrus was actually having an affair with Queen Lean, but I digress. And Ice Cream, I don't know what the heck that is, but we got to figure that out. And... I mentioned the small personal stories. There's another sealed chest, which if you're paying attention to, you notice. This is also a good time to mention the asymmetrical design. Uh, I wanted to give credit to Pat Holland. I hope I'm saying that name right because I didn't prep myself for this. I've been nonstop slamming this game for the last several days, so please forgive my scattered thoughts here. Uh, I will be putting a link to his YouTube, and I'll be putting a link to his site in the quotes, excuse me, in the, quote, uh, in the uh, comments down below. And... I just want to make sure that I'm having the right guy here. Right? Yes? Yes, that's him. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Yes, Pat Holloman. 
Pat Holloman? I don't know if I'm saying that right. He has done a lot of extensive analysis of Chrono Trigger, and I will be referencing uh, some things which he and I agree on uh, several times throughout this work, including the asymmetrical time travel design, and I wanted to give him credit and a shout-out. Uh, what I mean by asymmetrical time design is in several instances there are moments where you have you, the player, and the camera you're following follow an X amount of time that passes. Let's say five. It doesn't matter the time limit, just five passes. However, when you get back to a period of time which you, you've gone through, the five that have passed for you clearly has been more for them. Now, this makes sense for two reasons. First of all, from a purely narrative and constructive out-of-character perspective, it's something that allows the story to progress in ways that otherwise it wouldn't, and it means they don't have to bog you down with all the nitty details in between. Instead, the five, let's say days, the five days for you is maybe 15 days for, say, 600 AD. This is probably the most obvious example of this is when you get back to 600 AD after coming back from the future of 2300 AD and 1000 AD in order to uh, start the the war against the Fiend Lord and the Battle of Zenon Bridge. It's obvious based on circumstances and based on the evidence we have there, like the fact that they're, uh, they're, they've run out of rations, they've been fighting for some time, the bridge has been rebuilt, etc., that far longer than simply five days has passed. Now, the in-character reason this makes sense is because of the nature of the time travel you use in the entire first half of the game. I still want to kind of save my talks about that, because I really want to talk about that all in one chunk. All I'm going to say is that right now, the method by which you time travel, the time gates, is something that is clearly directed, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Hence, it makes sense in-universe that whatever is flinging you from time area to time area is not flinging you linearly, but rather however it chooses to. Anywho. So... Marl disappears. Now, this is kind of a plot hole, <laughs> if I'm just being completely honest. Now, I, this is where I have to once again mention that Chrono Cross is not something I'm considering, because I know Chrono Cross has the Dead Sea and the acknowledgement of dead timelines and all that fun stuff, but there's just too many problems with this particular aspect within Chrono Trigger. Let's look at the evidence, shall we? Marl disappears because the idea they have is that they have ceased and discontinued their efforts to search for Lean because they already found her. It's Marl. But that's not true, is it? Because Frog is already at Minoria Cathedral, and to be blunt, I'm pretty sure Frog could have succeeded in, in saving Lean anyways. Hence the idea that whether you intervened or not, Lean would still be saved. The specifics would, mat would vary, but she would still be restored to the timeline. If Lean is still saved by Frog, then we pres then we have a situation where Marl wouldn't disappear. Now, we could argue specific niggling details, like the fact that maybe Frog would be a little bit slower without us, and thus wouldn't save Lean in time, because Yakra might have been planning to actually kill Lean. These are things that we can debate, and I will acknowledge that. However, this the other reason I consider this to be a plot hole is because this is the only time time travel acts like this, basically in the entire first part of the game we see an individual who is functionally from the future disappear in the past, where we're currently at, because of alterations to a timeline which have already happened. It, it pro I probably shouldn't even have to go into detail to explain how all of that doesn't line up. Any other time where there is an alteration to the timeline, the effect is felt instantly, as it should be, because time has been changed. There's no wave effect. There's no eventually... Now, the other problem is time travel's exemption clause is something that exists within this setting. We, as na by our nature of time traveling, constantly retain our memory of the original timelines. For those of you who don't know, don't know what that means, a time traveler's exemption clause means you, the time traveler, are immune to the changes to the time stream. 
What I mean by that is if we weren't, every time we edit anything ever, our memories would instantly be adjusted in order to accommodate the new timeline because it was always that way for us. Make sense? But with Time Traveler's Exemption Clause, we remain completely unchanged as we interact with the timeline. Time Traveler's Exemption Clause is one of those things that's basically required to write time travel in fiction because otherwise it just becomes a nightmare's mess. Which brings me to Marl, who vanishes as a consequence of this thing. In addition to her vanishing, she mentions that she has cognizance while she's gone. Now again, Dead Sea kind of makes that make sense. But I have my own theory, and I will admit, this is a theory which is not canon. I want to make that very clear. However, it is my opinion that this theory fits rather smoothly with the sequence of events. This, so the real answer is, they made this part of the game before they made the rest of the game, so they hadn't really decided the rules of time travel yet. That's the real answer, and let's just all acknowledge that that's the truth. Now, my in-character explanation for what happens, because I do think this, this fits well, is that Marl was grabbed by, oh, I don't know, the entity, and pulled away from normal time for a moment as a specific impetus to current events. Because Marl's disappearance has two very big impacting moments on Chrono Trigger, really. The first is the most obvious. It gives you, you know, the players, uh, excuse me, it gives you Chrono. Let's just talk in universe. It gives Chrono and Luca an idea of what's going on, the understanding of the fact that they have time traveled, and the desire to try and intervene. The second point is really, really important. Because this is the one and only time the players do something and it seemingly changes the time stream before the second half of the game. And in so doing, the players, I keep saying the players, the characters now have the idea in their head that they can change time. Now, if you don't understand why that's so significant, in 2300 AD, Mara, Luca, and Chrono discover the Day of Lavos of 1999. Ha ha ha. And they discover that the world has been destroyed and they're now in the future. Luca's automatic reaction to that is just depressed glumness because, well, I guess that's the end of that. Marl is the one who says, no, we have to fight this because we can change history. We've already changed history, right? Now, imagine that moment if they had never changed history, if they had been cohesive with the idea of not being able to alter history in the first half of the game, which all other aspects of the first half of the game are, are cohesive with. They don't change history in the first half of the game. At best, they alter a few details, but even that is debatable, and I would actually argue is not true, for reasons we'll get to when we get to 12,000 BC. So at every point in time, all that they have been doing is completing history, type 1 time travel. But if they only ever completed history, then Marl would have never disappeared, and they would have never realized, or thought, I should say, that they can change history. And thus, they would have been looking at this like, instead of, oh, we can change this, it would have been, well, this is our future and there's nothing we can do about it. And you can see why that then becomes so important for the construction of the rest of the game and the narrative in general. How did Luca get into Guardia Castle? It's always kind of bothered me. Chrono has this whole issue and has to have the queen herself get him in. Luca just walks right in. I like to think she shot at the guys a couple times and was like, let me in, I'm a wizard! Most of the dungeons in this game are actually quite small. I know that sounds weird, but let me use Minoria Cathedral as a specific example. You've got the initial antechamber, which is basically not even a chamber. The next main room, which is a fairly large room, and it has one, two, three, four connecting side rooms, as well as the way forward. And then you have the next big room, 
then a hallway, then a boss. Very small by most games' uh, standards. And, of course, you might be like, well, this is the first real dungeon of the game. Of course it's small lore. But all of the dungeons in the games follow this, with very few exceptions. The big ones being the lair. The lair. <laughs> Magus's lair. Toronto lair. The Ocean Palace and the Omen are the big real exceptions to this dungeon design. And I feel like that's another part of that whole tightly, uh, tightly crafted, manually designed, dense dungeon design that goes throughout the game. I just wanted to mention that really quick. So, um, I already mentioned that. I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, one of the other things that the game does I just want to mention really quick, is it has this thing with selective respawning and ad generation. Now, one of the things the game will do, and the, the Minoria Cathedral introduces us to both ideas, is some enemies will respawn, even within a dungeon. Most enemies don't, actually. A, a huge number of enemies in this game do not respawn, and thus you can't really farm X in the strictest sense of the word, except in a couple of noteworthy areas, most of which are towards the latter half of the game. However, lots of fights, too, you'll be like, well, here's two snakes. Okay, I could take on two snakes. And they're like, oh my god, intruders! And they immediately summon reinforcements and fight you in a larger group. This is another aspect of the design of the encounters that's uh, brought up here very early in the game so that you're aware of it because it'll be a really common element later on. The general idea is don't walk into any fight assuming it's going to be easy because you never know what you're actually going to be fighting. <sighs> um, I mentioned the approach to trash in general. Uh, and the difficulty in the orange curve, Final Fantasy X-2, I've mentioned all of that. A lot of this, the, the the abilities that you gain when party members join you are all very specifically designed to help you through whatever area you are going through when they join you. Frog joins you built in with a heal. Now it is possible, or I shouldn't say possible, it is extremely likely that you have no form of healing. You probably don't even have that many potions at this point of the game. But you do have Frog, who has Slurp, which is very, very cheap to use. Thus you have a useful party heal to use relatively early on. This also introduces you to the idea that some of your uh, damage has to be sacrificed for the sake of survivability, which is something that will be a recurring trend in several of the tactics moving on. Uh, this Another probably better example of this same concept is when Robo joins the party, because Robo is incredibly high utility, probably the most high, generally useful character in the entire game, with the ability to do a lot of single target damage, a lot of AoE lightning damage, a decent amount of AoE shadow damage, a heal, and an AoE heal. He can do tons of different things, and he also has very, very useful double text. But I'll talk more about double text uh, in a bit when I feel it's more relevant. Moving on. <clears throat> Telling you, this should have just been a lore run. <laughs> Several of the enemies here are also vulnerable to magic only, which means that Flamethrower from Luca, which she is extremely likely to have at this point in time, is much more useful than either of your two heavy damage dealing people, Chrono or Frog. And I point that out because that's also going to be relevant later when you get to the, uh, the Hecran Cave. Now, let's talk about some lore stuff for a moment. The fiends, the mystics, have the ability to appear as normal humans, and by all accounts, they both sound and look like them. And they certainly can stay in character, to some extent. So, why do you think that is? One of the things that I know several people have just sort of automatically assumed is that they just have the innate ability to shapeshift. I don't buy that, personally. I actually think it's more of a site-specific thing. It is my opinion that these people have either equipment or specific magic which is cast upon them as infiltrators in order to infiltrate a glamour, if you will. And these glamour equipments or glamour spells allow these specific mystics or fiends in order to uh, appear as humans. 
and otherwise they wouldn't be able to unless a significantly powerful mage, probably Flea if I'm being honest, has the ability to cast that upon them. I also like the headcanon idea that Flea is the source of all these glamours, but that's not really related, it's just a little bit of world building. So, let's talk about the fact that every person can only equip a certain type of weapon. Now, this is not exactly a new idea. However, this is kind of a... Well, okay. The advantage of this is that you, as a game designer, can pretty much always predict what kind of equipment someone will have, roughly, at any given point in time. So you can design your difficulty curve approximate to what kind of equipment your players actually have. Because you will get a better sword for uh, Chrono in the Minoria Cathedral. And you know that that equipment's going to go on Chrono because he's the only one who can equip it. You also know that you're not going to get a gun. By the way, quick little aside. I like how, with only a few exceptions, Luca doesn't get new guns in eras where guns didn't exist. But at the same time, you don't really get swords in eras where that's not common and so forth and so on. Just, just a nice little touch I wanted to comment on. Anyways, so you can re reasonably presume that that sword's going on Chrono, because if they found it at all, he's the only one who can use it. That's the benefit of that. Now, the detriment of that is obvious. You are limiting the player's ability to customize their characters. There's also kind of an in-between of this. So FF7 and Chrono Trigger are both extremely limited. Everyone has their type of weapon, and that's all they can use. And that does make a degree of sense from a lore perspective as well. However, another game I could mention, that would be Final Fantasy VI, has the ability to limit you, but not completely. You can use swords, long swords, great swords, but you cannot use katanas or, or um, you know, daggers, for example. But you can, this guy can use daggers and rods, but cannot use, you know, etc., etc. And only one person can use, well, two people can use claws. It's a method by which you can ensure some of that limitation, but some of that customization still exists. I'm still not sure to this day which method I prefer. I just wanted to discuss it in brief when it comes to different aspects of designing the equipment curve for your characters going through an RPG. So we encounter Yakra. I will kill you, Queen Lean. That's why I've been holding you in this room for God knows how many minutes and not doing anything about it. I don't know. I kind of wonder if Yakra's actual plan was to completely replace Lean. Remember, we do actually see one of the glamoured mystics in the Minoria Cathedral who looks like Queen Lean, so that might have been the plan all along. I'm not sure. What I do know is that Yakra is, a, is basically here to be to, a forced tutorial in counter design. Now, I know what you're going to say. Gato, back in the, the fair, is also a, uh, in a counter design uh, boss, if you could call it that. But this is the first time you, the player, are forced to encounter someone who uses the counter design. What I mean by that is you hit him, and if you are too far away, he does a counterattack which hits your entire party. This also introduces the concept of situational relevance. So, for example, Yakram roams around in a circle. So anytime Luca hits him, he's going to counterattack. But at certain points, Chrono can hit him without a counterattack, and at certain points, Frog can hit him without a counterattack. This is also, and I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, when you can understand how counterattacks work when it comes specifically to dual attacks, because you probably have X-Cross, or X-Slash, excuse me, at this point in the game. And if you do, you, the person you select X-Slash with is the person it determines the counter based on. Anyways. So you take down Yakra. Um... I'm just going to run through a quick uh, the next couple of things that happen. You go back to the town. There's a lot of optional cutscenes you can see. Uh, you can talk to Lean. You can talk to King Guardia, the whatever. You can talk to Frog with Marl. You can go get Marl before any of this or after any of this. 
Um, you go through the forest. The forest has almost nothing but skippable encounters. I mentioned earlier that a decent number of encounters are skippable in this game, at least in the first half of the game. Almost every area where encounters are regularly and easily skippable is in, a, in an area which you are designed to backtrack through several times, like the forest leading to Guardia Castle. You'll be going back through this probably more than any other single point in the game, other than the end of time. So... Very, very easy, even if you're playing normally, to skip all the encounters there. And some place like, say, Mount Denodoro, which you would only really go back through like twice usually, that place you can skip them, but it's a little trickier to do so. Anyways. Uh, I love the irony of this. I just wanted to make this quick note here. The fact that you are hated by your own people and beloved by everyone else. The only political entity in the whole setting which really is consistently against you is the one here. Now, you could argue the kingdom of Zeal, but really, that's really Zeal herself. The actual kingdom isn't really against you. And you could just go back to Zeal just fine, even after you're supposedly an enemy of the state. And you could argue the mystics in Magus' Lair, but that's really getting into technically territory, especially since you can wander amongst them just fine in the present day. But you can't wander around Guardia Castle circa 1000 AD, not until the end of the game. Because you're hated and wanted and an unknown criminal here. But if you go into the castle in 600 AD, they say, Oh, thank God it's you! And you're well-renowned as a local hero. And the same in, in 2300 AD, and the same in 12,000 BC to the Earthbound people, and some of the Zeal Kingdom, and the same in 65 million BC. I just thought that was a nice little irony to comment on. So then we have the trial. First, I have a question for you, and I still am not t decided on this question to this very day. Do you think that this is already Yakra the 8th, I think? Hang on, I wrote it down. No, it's Yakra the 13th, excuse me. Do you think this is already Yakra the 13th, impersonating the Chancellor? Or do you think this is just the Chancellor being a, a, a power-crazed, evil individual? It could go either way, really. I'm not actually sure which I buy. There's a lot of really messed up stuff going on in that prison, but then again, it's a prison, so of course there is. The other thing I want to comment on, though, the trial itself is awesome. It's it, it uses very stylized graphics to, to showcase to the player that this is a significant event and that this is a turning point in the story, and it is. This is basically the end of what I would call Act 1. The trial itself is the is the penultimate uh, moment of that. Act 2 begins in prison and then concludes when you reach the end of time, but I'm getting off topic. The the way the reason I say the trial is interesting is because it basically tricks the player. This is, in my opinion, and Mr. Pat uh, also agrees with me on this, in my opinion, this is something that's being done deliberately by the designers to trick you, the player, into thinking that you can actually alter history, which at the moment, and for the majority of the game, you cannot. No matter what you do with the trial, you are found... Well, you are tossed into prison, and then you face the same choices in prison. It changes some cutscenes, it changes some flavor... It changes some of the dialogue, and of course, you can get some items if you're found innocent. But otherwise, that is it. And the, tr the prison itself is probably one of the most fascinating dungeons in the entire game, because it is the only dungeon like this. It is relatively large, far larger than most other dungeons. Despite the fact that each individual room is small, there are many rooms that branch out into different directions, including multiple dead ends and a lot of areas you can backtrack through to find additional equipment or whatever. In addition to that, you have the option to completely skip the entire dungeon by just standing there and watching a cutscene or three. That's also an interesting choice. Now, all of this, and I'll be bringing this up a couple more times, is about the New Game Plus more than anything. This is all about trying to give the player another way of going through the game, 
even though they still end up at the same place. Because New Game Plus is something that is encouraging the player to replay the game. It's one of the ultimate replay values. But as I've said many, many, many times, just adding New Game Plus, just adding mechanic, is not good enough. You have to design the game around that mechanic. You have to build it in and execute it, present it properly. This is one of the ways that New Game Plus really works in Chrono Trigger. If you don't feel like doing that dungeon again on your second playthrough, then you don't. If you don't feel like bothering at the fair, then you don't. And things still progress as otherwise. I very much like that. So, uh, let's see here. I already mentioned the Guardian Prison. Oh yeah, there's no music in the prison either. It's very unusual. There are precious few parts of this game where there is no music. I suppose that adds to the sort of grim atmosphere of the place. Several of the encounters you have here are with guards, which you can take out in a stealth section, by the way, and if you do so, you get items from it. You don't get to do that ever again. Um, but uh, the grim atmosphere, most of the enemies you fight are either monsters, literally ghosts of the, the, the damned and dead who have di died here, or the risen people, <laughs> like the skeletons, and it's just, it's this whole messed up thing. Then you fight the dragon tank. I'm not going to do a full diagnosis of the dragon tank fight here. I'm not sure you care. I talk about the full mechanics of the dragon tank fight and most boss fights over in the level 1 tasks. Plug, plug, plug. Um, so you get out. Marl insists that she's not having any of those. This is also the first hint that we get that Marl's father, the king, isn't really on board with this whole thing, but that he obviously feels like he has to maintain some semblance of decorum, or this is how things should be. And that'll be part of that character arc, which will be concluded much, much later. So, last, pretty much the last time I'll mention the, the shift thing here. The music, the, uh, the technology, the palette... Just about everything about the future of 2300 AD is completely different and really showcases how bad it's gone. But there's the other thing that 2300 AD does very well. There are cars and skyscrapers visible. Now, this is one of those things that creators do as shorthand to the viewer, the player in this case, rather than the characters, because Luca doesn't know what a skyscraper is. Marl and Chrono don't know what a skyscraper are. They don't know what cars are. They don't know what roads are. They haven't encountered those things. We do. And thus, we have more understanding of where and when they are than the characters do. And we can diagnose pretty much immediately what's happened. And, of course, the, the never-ending storm and the thunder crackling and the incredibly foreboding music, which continues in several of the domes as well, kind of helps to emphasize the tone and theme of the area. Um, look at my notes. Hang on. Uh, one of the things that's hinted at is that in the future, we're at maybe a year from total human genocide. Like, we're not far off is the point. That this is the very tail end of humanity, when the last few remnants are actively, currently, dying out. I kind of like that, because again, it's part of that whole guided tour aspect of time travel that happens in the first part of the game. That the the entity, let's just refer to it as it is, it's very specifically and deliberately tossed you here so that you could see life as bad as it's getting. If this was maybe 200 years previous to now, humans were probably doing a lot better overall. Still had food, still had population centers, and were actively still fighting against the robots, which we'll talk more about later. 
So we find out about all this thing. The Inertron is actually a brilliant invention. One of the weird things Chrono Trigger did, which was ahead of its time, is the inclusion of convenience features when it came to healing your party. Now, obviously, previous games had done this to some extent, like the healing walls in previous Final Fantasies. But in Chrono Trigger, using a tent just goes... And you're done. Using an Inertron... And you're done, right? In a lot of aspects, getting your party back up to full status takes very little time, real time, and thus doesn't feel like a bother to do. It's just a minor touch that's something that later games would use a lot more extensively. So, we find our way through the area, we deal with that goddamn rat, we can skip the guardian fight, although you have to bug it to do that. Almost all of the enemies here are monsters, rat, uh, mutants, and robots. Now I want to mention something, because this I think is the first time I really started noticing this, although it was actually in the factory. Most of, a lot of games, a lot of games, use palette-shifted enemies in order to make additional enemies. This goes all the way back to FF1 and Dragon Warrior 1. The idea is there's a slime, and then there's an orange slime, and then there's a pink slime, and then there's a green slime, and right? It's the same graphic, it's just had its colors shifted around. Now, we've kind of always accepted this because it's, it's something that saves a lot of development time. But one of the things Chrono Trigger did that I think was very brilliant is that for the most part... Most palette shifts are within a time area. So in other words, you don't, you, really, you don't usually see robots of a different color back in 12,000 BC, for example. Now, all the robot palettes, palette switches are all in 2300 AD, and thus you can buy the idea that this is different, uh, different uh, not different species, uh, different members of the same species, or you know, different, stronger members of the same species, or different members of the same design line, like with the robots, stuff like that. It's just a nice little visual touch that they added to the game, which I very much appreciate. This is when we get our exposition on Lavos. Now this, this is a big thing, because this is really when the game kind of gets started, right here in what is effectively Chapter 2. Because up until now, Lavos hasn't even really been hinted at or mentioned, not counting the intro uh, tutorial, or excuse me, uh, the, the, the thing that plays in the intro, the intro video. This is when we find out what Lavos is and what Lavos has done, and we understand kind of the scope and scale of the fight we're, we're facing. Now, from this moment up until the end of the game, Lavos will be a central figure to everything. There are personal stories, there are private little aspects of the game that continue with character arcs or growth or whatever, but for the most part, everything in the game always rotates and revolves around the same central pillar, Lavos. And that is actually a very brave design choice and something very few games actually do. And I do appreciate its, its, its particular execution here. Because it makes sense. Everything you're doing, you're doing because of a consequence of Lavos, or specifically to contradict or fight against Lavos. Even later on, we will find a method by which, aha, we can defeat Magus, and therefore we won't have to fight Lavos. Because at that point in time, the idea of fighting Lavos is suicide. But we have found it out, right? Anyways. Um... Lavos scene, Lavos's scene, which is of course nothing but despair, is immediately contrasted with the seed which we give to the people. Now, that is a very powerful moment in a very quiet and frankly dark way, because that seed will not save these people. Even if that seed is for something, you know, some kind of food or some kind of nurturing thing that will help these people, that is not going to provide them the kind of food and nourishment they need to continue to exist. It's just going to slow down the rate at which they're starving to death. Now that is very dark, but it kind of emphasizes the point because that's where we're at with Lavos. 
the connection between Lavos and the seed is that both represent a hope of something that we might be able to do, but in both cases is functionally impossible. There's no way we can fight Lavos, and there's no way that seed can keep these people going. This is when we talk about the sewers. Now, the abandoned sewers are is probably one of the biggest missteps in the entire game, in my opinion. And if I ever really have the time to sit down and do a... Uh, if I ever get the time to get sit down and do a... Uh, oh my god, I can't think of the name of my own feature. I've only gotten to do a couple of these. Uh, Keeping Perspective. If I ever get you the chance to do a Keeping Perspective of Chrono Trigger, this is one of the big negatives I'm going to give to the game. See, the sewer level is very obviously supposed to be done now. The enemies are at level to be challenging right about now, at about level 9 and 10. And the equipment they give is just barely better, specifically the Thunderblade, is just barely better. It's literally two attack points better than the Silver Sword, which you already have had two sources of at this point in time. So... When you actually have to go through here, because you do have to go through here mandatorily, much, much, much later in the game, you'll just roll through this place as if it's not even there, and all the equipment and experience will be completely wasted. So that's the first way it's kind of weird. The second way it's kind of weird is that it's basically this weird sort of, and now for something completely different, right? It's just this strange, weird, jokey thing that has nothing to do with anything. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I'm not requiring that all my games be grimdark forever. In fact, I'm one of those people who firmly believes in the idea of the silly factor being an aspect of some of the best serious RPGs out there. It just feels completely out of step and out of place to me. Then you go to see Balthazar. Now, that's actually the other interesting thing, because if you go to the sewers now, you get two benefits out of this. Th technically three. The third benefit is ex additional experience and tech points. But the first benefit is the Thunder Sword. I already mentioned that. And the second benefit is you get to talk to Balthazar. Now, Balthazar is just chock full of foreshadowing. He specifically references the Ocean Palace, the Blackwing, and he talks about Shala name drops her very, very early in the game, and he mentions, Death Peak, no, you can't go yet, and all that fun stuff. He is a very typical, you know, thing for people who are interested in the story to kind of digest, but obviously something you should keep in mind for later. All of this is, of course, optional, because shrug. But anyway, so you move on. Uh, you go to the Johnny encounter, the Johnny minigame. Let me just go ahead and say that I get what they were going with. There's a lot of gimmicks in this game, and a lot of them were uh, ideas that were bouncing around the developers' rooms that were rejected for previous games that they've been working on. But I have to say the minigame of Racing Johnny just doesn't work for me. I've actually analyzed that minigame on a TAS level. I talk about them, the TAS run. And it's really, really messed up in how brutal it actually is. Now, it's a fully controllable and manipulable fight if you know what you're doing, but... It just, the whole point is the, the more you're bouncing ahead, the more points you get. The more you're bouncing behind, the less points you get. Try to get as much points as you win. Winning it is, is a joke, and that's the one thing I'll give it. All you have to do is just sit there staring at the screen until you skip forward and boost, and then you win. That's all that's required. But I do find myself wondering why it was included. It's especially noteworthy because you don't have to do it. You can just fight your way through, but if you fight your way through, it takes a lot longer, and you're fighting enemies that are significantly stronger than you're supposed to be fighting at this point in the game. Anyways, so then you get to Robo. Now, Robo is probably... This is one of the more interesting aspects of the game because this is the first time you can choose your party. I also want to mention double text at about this point in time. This is when this really becomes relevant. See, 
I know some people who think that double text and triple text are basically flashy and have no purpose. And to an extent that is true at high level or at end game or when you're doing a new game plus run. But when you're playing through the for the first for the first time, the most usually useful thing about any of the dual texts that you get is that they allow you functionality you otherwise wouldn't have. And this is extremely easy to explain by the dual tech aura whirl. Aura Whirl is the very first AoE heal you ever get, and it will be your only AoE heal for a long time. Um, later on, Frog gets heal, and there's a couple other dual techs that work in that, and one triple tech. But for the most part, if you want to heal your entire party at one moment, you are reliant upon sacrificing Chrono and Marl's turns and having both in the party at any given point in time. This is especially interesting since the factory which you go to is obviously designed more for Luca, ignoring the fact that you get some equipment for her there. The more pertinent part is that she has a more interesting cutscene when it comes to the stuff with Robo. Robo himself is also clearly designed with the factory in mind. Again, I'm not going to go over every single specific ability, but let's just say that the amount of damage he can do with the abilities he has, as well as the fact that he has a ton of HP and defense for this point of the game, means that even if you're very low level, <laughs> you could still have Robo basically carry you through the factory. The factory is also interesting in that half of it, well, about more like a third of it, is completely optional. The entire right half, you don't even have to look at. Technically, you have to go there to get the Zaby password, X-A-B-Y, but you also can go there to get some equipment and some other things that are relevant, or you can just skip to the left side, know the password, because if you know the password in advance, you can do it, and move, move your way through the game. Just a quick little aside, I've always found it weird that you can completely skip knowing the password here, but you couldn't skip the password back in the previous dome. Right? Like, now I get why, because they wanted you to fight the Guardian fight, but that's really the only reason for that inclusion there. Hmm. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so, uh, you make your way through the factory. Uh, this is when we learn about the purpose of the, the, of the robots, and the irony of the fact that they all call Robo a defect. Because they all insist that we must, we must protect this place, we must prevent all intruders from happening. Now this is an irony for two reasons. Number one, this is actually a lie. Or at the very least, an inaccuracy. Because what we are seeing is that these other robot units, these RY units, are just defective or actually going berserk. Now we're not 100% sure which, but none of them act like they're actually being controlled by the mother brain. And that's important because we do know quite a few other robots are being controlled by the mother brain with the explicit purpose of seeking out and exterminating human life. But these are not like that. They're just acting like they are broken. Which is funny then, of course, because they accuse Robo of being defective. They also don't refer to him as Prometheus, but I digress. The other thing I wanted to comment on is Luca's ability to repair him. I mention that because, well, it's probably the first time Luca really gets her hands on some future tech. And again, leads to everything I mentioned earlier. So then you go through the time portal. You end up at the end of time. This is probably one of the most convenient and yet nevertheless better designed examples I've ever seen in an RPG of a limited party limit. Uh, to use a total contrast, in FF7, the only three members in the party limit because it's dangerous to be on the field with multiple people is, is absolute nonsense. And even further made stupid because every time you get to a new area, the rest of your party is there. <laughs> I get that a party limit is a thing. I get that that's an aspect of game design. Balancing a party of eight is insane. In fact, three and four are pretty much the sweet spots when it comes to party size in terms of determining game difficulty and game difficulty curve. 
But here we have an in-universe explanation that actually makes a degree of sense. More than three people can't travel through time at once. And what's funny is this is not just a gameplay thing. Much, much, much later in the game, four people will travel through time, and one of them will end up at the end of time as a consequence. Gasper, the guy you talk to here. So, that's actually pretty clever, and I do like the way they execute that. It's one of the more tightly designed aspects of the time travel in this game. So, I don't have much to say about Specchio. Really, I don't. Uh, he's cute and amusing. He has different phases and forms to himself. Basically, the stronger you are, the stronger he gets, and certain different forms of him give you different bonuses if you manage to defeat him. He is also designed to be something of a, of an, a free tutorial. There's no consequence for losing against him, and there's an instant heal one room over. So you just get to try out your new magic against him as, as a way of understanding how magic works and maybe just showing showcasing it a little bit. I find that a little bit amusing because the very next dungeon, the Hecron Cave, is a magic tutorial. Virtually every enemy in there is very resistant to physical damage and very vulnerable to magic damage. And the boss is extremely vulnerable to magic damage and highly resistant to physical damage. I don't have much to say about Medina. I do have to comment that uh, this is our very first insight. Oh, excuse me. This is our very first shot of Ozzy. This is something, as I mentioned before, the game does a whole lot of. The game will foreshadow someone in a certain way far before we interact with them. In fact, uh, Magus was actually foreshadowed all the way back in uh, Minoria Cathedral, where his statue was there. His statue is in Medina as well, once again kind of emphasizing the background nature of his character. But also, Ozzy the... I wrote down which number. Ozzy the Eighth is there, and we learn a little bit about Magus and the previous war and how it was lost as a consequence of these interactions. Melkor is there too, but he doesn't actually have much to do at this point in time. Instead, we end up talking to Hecran, of all people, who mentions that Magus summoned Lavos. Now, I already kind of mentioned that plot point, but it's relevant because it gives us some degree of hope. It's like, it, to continue the seed analogy, all of a sudden we find an entire packet of different seeds, and it's like, oh my gosh, we don't have to live off of just one seed, we can make this work, right? So now we have a goal. All of our efforts from this point until the end of Magus's lair is all focused on killing Magus. <laughs> um, and I like that. Uh, so let's cover some of the sequence of events that happen after that. First is the Zenin Bridge, of course. Now this is when we first actually meet Ozzy. We also have to do the conclusion of the brothers' little story arc between the Master of Kitchens and the Knight. I'm not going to comment on too many of those little stories. There's a lot of them. Let's just let's just move on from that. So we go and assist in the Battle of the Zenin Bridge, and we also learn about uh, Tata. And his, you know, the, the legendary hero who's got the great medal. Now, this is a classic story, and it's very well executed. The idea here is that Cyrus was the legendary hero. He was the actual legendary hero. The great warrior of legend who got the medal and defeated the enemies and, and united the people and inspired everyone as a hero. And he had the Masmune, and then Magus crushed him like a bug. Now, I do like that overall construction of events. In fact, I love it. It is pretty much the classic subversion of the typical Arthurian hero archetype. The idea that I am the great and powerful hero, and, and he's just great at everything, and he just dies to the actual villain. Magus just obliterates him. And then it's like, oh, maybe we should do something to... And of course, he curses Frog, that is to say Glenn. Glenn turns into Frog and now has advantages that he otherwise wouldn't. Thus, Magus manages to create a worse enemy. And 
Frog, that is to say Glenn, who was an excellent swordsman. It's mentioned, as this is more clear in the DS version's translation, it's mentioned that Glenn was actually a better swordsman than Cyrus, and, basi and basically a better fighter in every way. But Glenn, well, he didn't have the mentality. He wasn't the, 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 the stoic, sharp-chiseled chin guy who could grin and make damsels woo and make men inspired, right? You know, he didn't have any of that going like Cyrus did. But he was the better hero. He was the nobody who had to slog his way up from total defeat and being cursed in order to actually accomplish this task. In other words, Cyrus had everything basically handed to him. I don't want to say that as a, as a complete derogatory, because obviously Cyrus was a decent guy who was sleeping with the king's wife, who, um, who, who you know, actually earned at least some of his accolades. But Glenn, he started from nothing, and he crawled his way up to being the actual hero. But of course, Glenn, especially after the events back at uh, Menoria Cathedral, looks at this whole situation like he is a com complete failure, tosses the medal away, and goes to hide in the woods, probably where he's been hiding for some time, I would imagine. And then, of course, some kid finds it and goes to sell it, and now there's this kid who everyone's calling the great hero, and, well, now he's in way, way over his head. One of the things I find most amusing about Tata is the fact that he got as far as Mount Denodoro. What I mean by that, I like to picture, you know, the, the knights formed a circle around the, the legendary hero and got him across the bridge at great cost. In other words, I could imagine that, if not for Tata, the, the knights might have actually had a chance at winning the Zenin Bridge fight. But they took such severe losses getting this kid, who was probably running scared the whole time to get across, that they were in a worse state and they needed us to help assist them in the final battle as we're going through there. Right? Now, this is also, by the way, the first time we see that the enemy, that is to say the mystics or the fiends, actually use necromancy as a method of, of augmenting their forces. Funnily enough, they make a point that the skeleton monsters are actually very weak, relatively speaking, which is important because if they weren't, then why the hell haven't they already won, is basically the question that's being asked here. Anyways, so we confront the kid. He, he admits that he is a fraud. Of course he does at this point. I mean, oh god, Denodoro, oh god, monsters everywhere. Denodoro is another interesting place to talk about because it's obviously designed, again, credit to Mr. Pat, it's obviously designed to be a dungeon that feels longer and harder than it is, but it is neither. It is a relatively short dungeon with relatively few encounters, the overwhelming majority of which can be completely skipped. And the few that you actually have to fight are incredibly easy. All you need is a little fire damage, and poof! This is also introducing the concept of... Uh, uh, player-induced uh, player vulnerability stages in enemies, which is something that will be a regular recurring theme in later encounters as well, and most notably the Red Knight fight. So having made your way through Denodaro, you fight the Masmune. I'm just going to pause for a moment. I know everyone hates my pronunciation of that, and I apologize. I will do my best not to say that word in the future. I know I've heard like five different ways to pronounce Masmune, Masamune, Masamunya, or... God, I don't even remember the others off the top of my head. The two most common ones I hear are Masmune and Masamune. And I try to bounce between those as best as I can. And I've, over the years, I finally decided to just say, screw it, and say Masmune. Moving on. So you have a actually surprisingly easy boss fight with the twins and then with the thing itself. This is also, strangely enough, another aspect of, of, of foreshadowing. These are crafted individuals. These two were actually built or enchanted into, but I like the idea of built more, into this blade. And that you do all this thing and you find a broken blade, and it's like, oh. 
Okay, well, we have a broken blade. Now what do we do? Um, let's take it to Frog, see what he knows. This is also when we start to get a little more backstory about Frog. We get most of the backstory after the 65 million BC jaunt, but I'm going to talk about it now. Because I always got the very strong impression from Glenn that in an ideal world, Glenn would have been a great swordsman who never had to bloody it. In other words, and I know this sounds strange, Glenn strikes me as the kind of person who would really love sword fighting as an art form, not as a combative measure. Not actually slicing up people or creatures or whatever, but just in duels or friendly jousts or just, just for the fun of it, you know, up against a shadow or a tree, right? I, it, because it is in its own way an interesting form of exercise and artistic expression. And I do like that idea. And Glenn is, of course, someone who was forced never, to never be able to do this by the nature of growing up in this particular era in the middle of a freaking war. So... I always feel very strongly for him. It's some great cutscenes back to forth, and we really feel for him. This is probably some of the biggest character stuff in the entire game is for Frog, for Glenn. And I point that out because you'll notice I haven't really been talking about the characters that much. Most of the characters really only get one or two cutscenes to really develop them as a character. I know this sounds so strange, but Chrono Trigger, for all its, its highlights, for all its tightly designed, for all of its positives, is actually very low on characterization, for the most part. There are some character arcs, and there's some small character moments, but they're all little t tidbits. To use a direct comparison to Final Fantasy VI, FF6 is really, really heavy on character, to the point where characters actually take a front seat to actual plot in several instances. The story of Terra and her discovery of herself and her true nature is in many ways more important than the fight against the Gestalian Empire. By contrast, in Chrono Trigger, the combat against Lavos and his creator, Magus, is always going to be more centric. We only get a few little sideline stuff where we get insight into characters like Frog. Uh, Frog gets some, Luca gets some, Marl gets a great scene towards the end of the game, optional. Robo gets a great scene towards the end of the game, optional, you know. Which brings us to Ayla. Now, I will admit that I myself have really hard time pronouncing her name. Anybody who knows me knows that uh, my natural accent ha has a tendency to say the letter A as ah. And I don't really do that on purpose. It's just how I talk. It's, it's just how I've talked for many, many, many years. However, obviously there are many other ways to pronounce the letter A. And thus saying someone whose name is A, Y-L-A, is really difficult for me. So please forgive me if I screw up and actually pronounce her name multiple different times here. But anyways, Ayla, or Isla, or... <laughs> Whatever her name is, Cat Lady, uh, is one of the more interesting presentations of a straight-type character in this game. So she comes up, and she is obviously really, really strong. She can do more damage than anyone else in this entire game uh, under the right circumstances. And even if you don't do min-maxing setup, she still will be hitting like a truck. Of your major, major physical damage dealers, that would be Chrono, Robo, Frog, she will hit way harder than any of them, even under normal, ordinary, at-level, at-equipment circumstances, which is, of course, by design. Funnily enough, her techs also start off completely from scratch, as if she doesn't know anything, which sucks because most of her techs are very utility rather than direct useful, with three extremely big exceptions. Isla is incredibly important to just about any game style for three things. She has a heal, which she gets very early on. She has a massively damaging attack. That's the triple kick, which is very useful for many bosses in the game. 
and she has the ability to steal. She is the only one in the game who can steal items. And there is a huge amount of useful, stealable items in this game. Most notably, it's pretty much the only way to really max out your tabs on a... Well, you can't do it on a single playthrough, I think. But you can do it on a second playthrough. Uh, no, I think you can do it on a single playthrough if you get every single speed tab. I'm not sure about that. But anyways, point being, she helps a lot with her ability to steal. It's also how you can get tons of things like prism helms and other stuff like that. So the ability to steal is awesome. And Isla herself is actually very awesome. But the whole 65 million BC thing, is, is, it's, it's a breather episode. It's here to give you a chance to relax before the big climax, which is Magus's lair. I mean, first you have a party. <laughs> That's your first thing. All right, here's a party. Yeah! And you can go do some optional stuff. You can go to the Dactyl Nest, although the Dactyl Nest is specifically designed to beat the crap out of you at this level. So you're not really supposed to go there, and there's nothing it can actually do there other than get some equipment. You can go to the hunting area. That's a fun little diversion. It's basically a mini-game. You go and you hunt monsters, and rather than, you know, usual stuff, you actually get specific uh, items that you can trade for actually pretty useful gear. Although the gear you get later on in the game is way more useful. Actually having three red males is practically mandatory for a low-level playthrough of this game. And then you get, you know, random people in the village who are like, Oh, me old person. We also learn about this big, massive war between the reptites and the humans. I'm not going to say too much else about that right now because it's just base. It's we're still in the foreshadowing phase, but we do learn that there was this great conflict between the humans and the reptites. We also learn that the humans are currently losing that conflict. We then go to the actual uh, little reptite hole, uh, which is two dungeons, pretty much back to back, both of which are relatively short and actually extremely easy overall. Both of which are, however, designed to appear more dense than they otherwise would seem to be, and both of which kind of emphasize just how much stronger the Reptites are than anything else you've been fighting. This is, of course, concluding with the interaction with Azula and Nisbel. Now, Azula, she's an interesting one. She is someone who obviously is, is fairly intelligent. She speaks far more clearly and concisely and has a greater vocabulary than anyone else of the era. She also has, based, has taken the gate key and recognizes that it is technology, an advanced technology at that. This right here gives us some insight into why the reptites are winning. It's not just the fact that they're lizards, which are generally accepted to be stronger than mammals in most cases. It's the fact that they are more advanced. It also leaves in the back of your mind the question, how are the reptites, like, how, are they, how do the humans win? Because obviously the humans win, but how? How is that even possible, given the circumstances? Regardless, after some discussions with Azula, we then fight Nisbel, which is our first introduction into basically the inverse of uh, the vulnerability thing I mentioned in Dunadaro. You can hit him and send him into a vuln state, and then he has a uh, recusant thing, where he comes back and hits you with his lightning damage, and you have to be ready for it. Basically just starting to combine tactics bit by bit. Your usual progression of tactical design when it comes to bosses. But what I really want to talk about is the breather episode thing. I know I already mentioned that, but it's so strange to me how you get to this part of the game, and then you lose your gate key. That means you're stranded in time, which is actually one of the most horrible things I could think of off the top of my head, especially when the time you're stranded in is 65 million BC, where you don't have things like, you know, medicine, or, you know, properly cooked food, or running, you know, running water, or clean water, or, um, you know, plumbing. 
<laughs> it's, it's this it's incredibly terrifying thing, even more so because your entire fight against Lavos is being curtailed by the fact that you're stuck here. And they basically treat it like an episode of Scooby-Doo. Oh, no, someone took the gate key. Ah, we got it back. We're cool. And, of course, what you're really here for is the red stone, which will be important later. They take the red stone back to Melkor. A really cool song plays. And Melkor helps to forge this thing. Now, we've known from the very beginning, from the fair, right at the beginning of the game, that Melkor is a swordsmith. He flat out admits that. This is also, you know, when you can buy that other sword I mentioned. Actually, that was earlier when you went through the last time. Forgive me. But this is our first insight into the fact that Melkor is more than he seems. And his comments about how he knows what the Redstone is, how he knows what the Mazmune is, he doesn't answer them fully, but he hints that there's more going on here. The story of the stages, sages is probably one of the most tightly written, well-crafted aspects of the entire plot of Chrono Trigger. That's all I'm going to say about that for right now. Regardless, having gone through the breather episode, having gone through Ozla, we start off with the double fake-off. Now, fake-out, excuse me. Now, this is actually a weirdly common design element of a lot of RPGs I've noticed. The, ha-ha, it's the last dungeon! Nah, just kidding. Right? Like, I'm sure you could think of several examples of that off the top of your head as well. This one, they put a strangely large amount of effort into this, even though I've never known anyone who's actually fallen for it. Because Magus's Lair is only like six or seven hours into the game. We're not that far into that. Now, granted, Chrono Trigger is a very short game, 16 to 18 hours on average for a normal playthrough. But still, there's no way the game's ending here. And yet, if you've been paying attention to the story and you don't know what's coming, everything has been emphasizing that Magus is the final boss. That our only goal is to defeat Magus, so Lavos never happens. Well, we go through this massive dungeon, brilliantly designed dungeon. I'd love to just sit and discuss the design of just Magus's lair, because there is some true artistry in the design of this place. All I'm going to say right now is it's very well done. We fight two bosses, both of which are very different in design. One is all about status effects, and one is all about raw damage in a very short period of time. Slash is extremely quick, and there's also a lot of encounters here. One other interesting side note, this is some of the best experience in the game right here. Not in terms of how much experience you get per enemy, but in how much experience you get per time. In other words, uh, in a real-life sense, if you spend 10 minutes leveling here and 10 minutes leveling here, whichever one gives you the most experience in 10 real-life minutes is the better X over time. I know that sounds like a strange thing to say and to explain, but uh, I have had to explain that to several people in my life, so I thought I'd go ahead and do that just to be sure about it. The point being, though, there, there's an area on the uh, eastern part of the early section of the, of, the, of the lair where you're going up to Flea's area, and you can go up, and there's uh, the, the Barghest or whatever, and they summon a bunch of enemies. One AoE, which is easy to get at this point in time if you bring Marl. Marl and Frog, if they learn Water and Ice, have the ability to do something like Glacier. I forget the exact name of the spell, but it is an AoE Ice spell that will kill everything except for the guy who's immune to magic. And then you swing at him a couple times and he's dead. And you can just repeat this over and over and over. And it is very easy to do. And you get tons of experience and tech points. Way more than anything up to this point in time. And way more until anything for quite some time after. The next time you get anything even comparable to this is at Mount Woe. And in my opinion, 
Although, this isn't, uh, don't take this as absolute writ, this is the second best leveling spot in the entire game. The only place that's actually better is a very specific screen on Death Peak, where you can go back and forth and immediately encounter some of those cracker guys, kill them all in one hit, go back and forth, kill them all in one hit, and get absolutely insane experience per hour. That's where I usually hit 99 is on that screen. Anyways, so you get tons of experience, tons of tech points, really good equipment. You, uh, you have tons and tons and tons of encounters, some of which are skippable, but that's a bug. And they even do like this side scroll thing just to kind of emphasize the different nature of it. The music, if you could even call it that, is completely unique. And in the mo- for the most case, the music overrides the battle music. And there's traps which you can fall into. And there's save points that can attack you. And there's guillotines that can hurt you. And just so forth and so on. There's a lot of aspects to this dungeon which all emphasize that this is something different and new and unique. And then you fight Ozzy. Now, Ozzy's an interesting example because... Slash and Flea are both portrayed fairly linearly and fairly like they are the villains. Ozzy is clearly intended to be comedic. I mean, anybody named Vinegar is probably going to be a joke, but I always wonder why that specific decision was made, because by all accounts, if you really sit back and look at the overall lore of the setting, Ozzy is really the villain of the entire Mystic Fiend Lord War arc. He's the one who pushed for the idea of, of war against the humans. Magus didn't give a crap. Magus accepted the role of being in charge by virtue of A, being stronger than anyone else, and B, because it would enable him to have the resources to set up his summoning of Lavos. That's it. He didn't give a damn about this war, or the humans, or any of it. But Ozzy is the one who's in favor of killing and raising up the dead to fight and wiping out the humans and so forth and so on. In fact, his entire plan is he thinks he is preparing and, and Magus to summon Lavos to kill all the humans. And yet he's the joke character. (laughs) I sometimes wonder if the reason Ozzy is a joke is because they looked at the design of the bosses and realized that they only had a few choices when it came to Ozzy. And making him a non-boss joke was one of the better options available. And thus he just became a joke character like after the fact, after they designed that. I don't know. He could have also just been a breather. You know, Slash and Flea are fairly straightforward. The whole lair is dark and and just gloomy and incredibly awesome. And then you get to Ozzy and it's like, whew, you, you get this one little breath before you go down and fight Magus. Now, Magus is a fun fight. It's also the first time we've really met Magus. It's the second time we've seen him on character and the fifth time we've heard him referenced or mentioned throughout the course of the story. He's been built up fairly decently. In fact, he's been built up more than Lavos himself has, or itself, depending on how you prefer that. And... Magus is, he's also a unique boss design. First of all, he's got the switching barrier boss, which isn't exactly a new concept when it comes to JRPGs, even by this point in history. But he also has an entirely second phase, which is a new thing. And that second phase is built about him reducing the amount of damage he takes, him hurting you, and then him beating the ever-living crap out of you. It's when Magus just stops, he just kind of, all right, build up, build up, build up, dark matter. Which is, in addition to sounding very cool, looks very cool, and does a crap ton of damage. It is actually, if you are underleveled, Dark Matter can just kill you by virtue of the fact that you just cannot withstand it. Unless you have some ability to cast Shell on yourself or something similar. Fighting Magus at level 1 was insane. But anyways, after that wonderful, incredible fight, we have to talk about Frog and Magus. Now, obviously, Magus' story arc hasn't even really begun. We don't even know much about him as a character. But his character arc, in many ways, parallels Frog's, or Glenn's, that is to say. 
both of them were people who were basically better than their peers, but for various reasons didn't want to be. They didn't want the attention. They didn't want the focus. They just wanted to be over and do their own things. They both also had someone very close to them that they cared about a great deal, whom they lost. Cyrus was killed by Magus, and Shala was lost to Lavos. I say lost to because... Uh. And um, in both cases, they took this and were effectively cursed by these actions and decided to use that. In, in Frog's case, of course, it's a literal curse. In Magus's case, it was him being lost time. But in both cases, they decided to use these events to try and grow from them and to accomplish whatever mattered most to them. This is where their stories diverge, though. And this is how, as much as I like Magus as a character, Glenn is a better character. Because Glenn took all of this and came out of it with the best of himself. Magus went through all of this and came out of it with the worst of himself. He decided the only thing that mattered to him was revenge. Not getting Shala back. Not finding his way home. Not redeeming himself, not doing something to better the people around him, not trying to combat the threat. No, all he cared about was revenge. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And he does this to a literally stupid extent later on in the Ocean Palace. Glenn is all about trying to right this wrong. Well, Glenn absolutely cares about revenge against Magus. Ultimately, Glenn himself can, at plain reaction, say it will not bring Cyrus back. And in his final conclusion of his arc in, in, the, uh, in the tome, tomb, excuse me, Glenn will admit that he is at peace with having tried the best that he can in order to be the best that he can, and that that is how he has his, for lack of a better way to put it, revenge. That is how he balances the scales. I also think that this is one of the reasons why bringing Frog to the Magus, fi the Magus refight is absolutely mandatory, because I think Frog should be the one to, al to allow Magus that chance to do what Frog was able to do, to be able to make his life mean something. So, having accomplished this incredible awesome fight in this incredible moment, this is also when we learn that, Ma learn that Magus did not actually create Lavos, he merely summoned him. Whoops. Now, this reveal is kind of obvious in hindsight, and leads to us being dumped all the way back in 65 or 64 million BC. We have very little breathing room. Very, very little. Because events are happening very quickly at this point. In fact, the first thing we learn is that the reptites are on the move, and they've actually just wiped out an entire nearby village. This is, once again, showcasing the level of threat that the reptites are, and helping to emphasize the fact that the reptites really should have won already. And it's probably only Isla's direct intervention that has prevented them from winning so far. So Isla goes to get a dactyl. We go to get a dactyl. There's this red star in the background. I don't know what's going on with that. And then we go to Toronto Lair. Toronto Lair is basically the same as the Magus's Lair, in the sense that it is a unique dungeon with unique mechanics that are specifically designed for it. These are a lot of trap squares. These are a lot of teleport spots. There's, there's a lot of winding areas. You can go back through areas multiple times. There's a lot of skippable stuff. There's a lot of skippable items. There's a boss you can completely bypass if you know what you're doing. And it all culminates, cumulates in a very difficult, well, reasonably difficult, very challenging boss fight, the Black Toronto. Now, this is the last bit of characterization we get for this situation. There can be a lot inferred from the Reptite-Human War. Obviously, one thing we do learn is that humans are functionally not natural in this world. This is dipping a little bit into Chrono Cross, I admit, but the general idea is still present in this game. The idea that the Reptites were always the 
natural species, the trolls, if you will, to use an Azeroth parallel, and that the reptites are the ones who were supposed to rise to dominance and were supposed to be the ones to actually be the, the species that won the, the, the Darwinian game. It is only the intervention of Lavos, the players, and Isla that prevents all this from happening. This is probably the first moment where it becomes very, very clear that we are not actually altering time. Because as a direct result of our interactions, Lavos is summoned down to the planet. We do that. We push that. It could be argued that that might have happened originally. That is uncertain. I don't buy it personally. Now, it's possible, it's absolutely possible, to, to argue literally that Isla would have been able to get through the Toronto Lair, defeat the Black Toronto, and force Ozla to bring down the Red Star. That's totally a thing, and I would totally give you that. But thematically, it fits more if we are personally involved in causing that star to fall. Because that's the whole point of this section of the story. We are not actually altering anything. Despite the fact that we have gotten through quite a bit of the game, have accomplished great things, if you really sit back and think about it, we haven't done anything. Time has continued to move on as if we were never a part of it. This is why, and I'll talk more about the time thing in just a bit. I'm kind of building up to that point. But this is why the first part of the game really follows its own rules of time. Quick aside, what do you think exactly happens between the interaction of Ozla and Lavos? I've heard a lot of different theories on this one. I'm going to name some of the, the ones that come to mind immediately off the top of my head. Some people insist that Ozla and Lavos have nothing to do with that at all, each other at all. That it's just total coincidence that Ozla is like, Red Star, fall! Stay in the Earth, Red! And then Lavos happens to come down sometime later. Total coincidence. Some people think that Ozla specifically summoned Lavos with the kind of telekinetic power you know, and obvious advanced abilities that she had. Some people think that she served as a beacon, that Lavos happened to be in the area, you know, in the system, for example. And then it, uh, Lavos heard her cry, her call, and decided to zoom in on this planet. And some people think that she literally grabbed it with telekinetic ability and guided it towards the planet. I'm not sure what I think at this point. I like the call thing most, personally. You know, like, oh, hey, there's some food over there. But what do you guys think? As ever, I love to hear your guys' thoughts. And if you've been listening this long, you probably have some thoughts to share, and I look forward to reading them. So having gone through the Toronto Lair, we end up in what is usually considered one of the best aspects of the game. I actually know several people personally, three I can name right off the top of my head, who there's just this grin on their faces whenever we reach this point of the game. It's like you've made it through the Magus's Lair, you've made it through the Toronto Lair, and now we're in zeal. And it's just like, ah, and there's this great music playing, and there's brilliant visuals. Again, I, I, this is the last time I'll bring up the, the visual design thing, but once again, extra effort is made to differentiate zeal from everywhere else in, in even new ways. Bookshelves. There's tons of bookshelves here. The design of everything is incredibly detailed and intimate. Everyone involved has this purple look to them, which is this sort of subtle in implication of the whole purple concept as it's always existed in human society, you know, being royalty in other words. Um, there's mention of the earthbound ones and the severe caste system going on, so we see that this is a, a somewhat decadent elite. And yet, as we interact with the people up in the kingdom, while there are certainly decadent elite amongst there, there's also normal, ordinary people who just happen to be part of a decadent society, which helps to add some nuance and flavor to it, which is usually lacking in a game of this particular era's uh, you know, limitations for being on the SNES. There's also... 
another nice little detail, and that is the fact that this is the first time we finally see those damn chests and the design, the emblem that we've been seeing since the very beginning of the game, and that very first inn, all the way back in Truce, we finally start to see those chests and that, that's, that wall. In fact, this is when we see that finally opened by Shala and her pendant. Oh, I suppose I should bring up that this is when we first meet Shala. Arguably one of the main characters, if not the main character of Chrono Trigger, Shala is at the center point of almost everything that happens in this game. She, uh, her immediate introduction is that is very carefully crafted. She is shown as someone who's kind, someone who cares about others, someone who is interested in the party, someone who is, who regrets and laments what's going on and knows that horrible things are happening and doesn't think she has any choice but to be a part of it, and of course is probably going to have have horrible, horrible things happen to her. She is the focus point of the tragedy of Chrono Trigger, most assuredly. And most of the major tragedy of this game surrounds her. Now, um, there's tons of exposition here. This is where the design is different, too. There is a huge amount of information that's just dumped on the player at this point of the game. And there's also lots and lots of useful treasure and basically no encounters. There are two optional fights, both of which are completely side fights that you have to go out of your way to find and do a puzzle to even access, and if you do, you get some pretty good gear from it. But both fights are also incredibly easy on top of everything else. So this whole section is unique. Very, very, very few games, even nowadays, will do something like a complete episode or chapter where the entire tone and and direction of design shifts completely into a new tract. Now, I mentioned the two fights. One is with the news. The other is actually with the golem, which is also a supposed-to-lose fight. You can beat it. The golem here is actually probably one of the hardest golem fights in general, although the golem twins also have issues as well. But you learn the basics of how the golem mechanics work simply by virtue of fighting him. That's important because that will inform us on how to fight the golems later, which is a mandatory fight we can't avoid. Anyways, we also learn a little bit about the characters here. There's a surprisingly large amount of characters introduced in this small section. Shala, Janus, Dalton, Prophet, and the Queen. I'm going to talk about these in that order. I've already kind of mentioned Shala, and I'll talk a little bit more about her later, but we also learn that she is someone who is... While she is someone who comes across as demure... She is not someone who is afraid to stand up for herself or what she believes in. This is going to be a recurring aspect of her character, actually, later on when she goes down to the Earthbound Ones, uh, just prior to the Undersea Palace. She clearly is openly and actively defying the will of both her mother and her kingdom, and the general will and dictates of fate. This is not someone who's going to sit quietly and just accept things. She's going to stand up and do. In many ways, I personally believe that Shala was intentionally or otherwise, probably unintentionally, a prototype for Aerith over in Final Fantasy VII. Someone who, while having a soft side and having a wisdom and kind of ethereal quality to her, nevertheless is really more of an aggressive, assertive type than anything else. Someone who is way more capable than most of the people around her. Janice, of course, is portrayed as basically a brat. However, even at the beginning, we find out that there's a couple of additional details that to him that kind of shift things. Funny little fact, when I first played this game and he gave his line, one, of you, one amongst you will shortly perish, my first thought was, well, that's weird. Since I can choose my party, how can he tell? It took me several minutes until afterwards to realize that there is one member of my party that I can't swip, swatch, swap, uh, switch, swap out at this point in time. Chrono. <laughs> Anyways, Janice comes across as having additional layers and depths to him, and you get some exposition about him, too regardless of the fact that he's kind of a brat. 
He obviously cares about his sister. He obviously cares about Alphador. And he is very powerful, but goes out of his way to not showcase that. He also obviously does not agree with anything that's going on. He doesn't like what's happened to his mother. He doesn't like the inclusion of Dalton. And he thinks this whole movement for the kingdom is just bad. So we do see that there's more to him than just being a brat, even in the little bit we get with him. Now, Dalton, he is the absolutely stereotypical rich elite aristocrat type. He is basically Aussie 2.0. It's just that rather than being a monster who wants to wipe out all humans, he's a human who's only interested in himself. Basically shifting the focus from fanatic to complete self-interest, greed, selfishness, whatever you want to call that. It's very clear that the only reason Dalton is where he is is because he cares so much about himself. It's also implied, and I've always liked this idea, that Dalton himself is actually a lot weaker than most of the other enlightened ones. But there's a catch. He is a summoner. And one of the only summoners we see in all of Chrono Trigger. Very few people actually have summoning arts or summoning power in this. He's one of the exceptions. And I, I kind of like the idea that as a summoner with that unique talent, he was able to use that to both leverage and literally destroy whatever is in his way in order to get to the position that he finally ends up in. Uh, the Prophet. <laughs> I'll admit, the first time I saw the Prophet, I didn't pick up on it. It wasn't until, like, a few a few scenes later in the palace specifically where I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> the Prophet is another example of what I mean by the Type 1 time travel. Still building up to that, but I'm just mentioning it really quick. He is obviously someone who is very wise, has some kind of um, interest or care in the party. He's basically our antagonist here, most for the most part. And he is mentioned at being very magically powerful and having incredible predictive capacity. And then we bring the Queen... Unfortunately, the Queen gets almost no characterization in both this and the Undersea Palace, other than power, evil, and that's all the characterization she gets. It's actually a damn shame. She doesn't get characterization of any real type until we get to the Black Omen at the very end of the game, which I'll discuss later. So then we get the pendant. We see how the pendant can open up the thing, and thus we literally see what it can do. And just in case you forgot, the game shows you a very brief cutscene of one of the pendants in 2300 AD, or excuse me, one of the pendant doors in 2300 AD, so you can understand what its use is. And if you're careful, you can run around and get a whole lot of really, really good gear at this point in time. In fact, in some cases, you can get two of it, because all you have to do is get the present version first, and then get the past version second. However, funnily enough, if you get the past versions first, the present version is gone. I just want to give cre credit and praise and kudos to the, to the designers of this game for actually thinking about that. You'd be surprised how many people wouldn't when it comes to game design, even nowadays. Um, so we go, we find out about Balthazar, and he gives this wonderful, wonderful speech, which is actually one of my favorite speeches in the whole game. I thought about writing it down just to read to you, but I figured by the time I get to this point, my throat would be dying, because I've probably been talking for over an hour, and I don't know what my time is at right now, but I'm pretty sure we're over an hour. <laughs> but he gives a wonderful speech. And it gives us an insight into what it was like being trapped out of time. The kind of tragedy that we should have been facing when we faced the same concept back in 65 million BC or 64. I can never remember if it's 64 or 65. In the prehistoric era. And we end up going back to antiquity and using our, our new position in order to, you know, our, our, the wings of time, which can give us some kind of time travel, but it's all still very, very limited time travel. You'll also notice that in lore, we only use the, the Wings of Time ship once to go back to uh, the antiquity, back to 12,000 BC. 
And that's important, and I want you to remember that, okay? This is also something that we were able to access because of the gates. That's also important. Remember that. So having reached this point in the story, we end up going back and going to uh, Mount Woe. Now, Mount Woe is actually very interesting from a design perspective. Uh, first of all, we get a more detailed insight into just how messed up life is for the Earthbound ones, and once again, kind of emphasizing the whole elite aristocracy thing and all that fun and horrible stuff. We also see, uh, so Mount Woe itself is when we're introduced to Melkor again and his significance to the plot. We finally find out that Melkor is a sage, which is something we've already guessed about Balthazar, and so this kind of leads us to the natural conclusion that the sages that we, we, you know, we've been encountering throughout time all came from here, which leaves you with the thought in the back of your mind, what happened? We also, I want to talk about the game design of Mount Woe for a second. I'll be talking about this about Undersea Palace as well. In Mount Woe, all of the enemies are very easy. As in, really easy. As in, even if you're riding the orange line, you could still one, or in some cases, two shot basically everything here with the tools at your disposal. They also give a very large amount of experience. There's very good gear here. This is like third tier gear at this point in the game, not counting the extra DS stuff. And um, there's also the Rubbles, whose only feature is that they have an extremely high evasion rate, and they eventually run. This is actually something that will be used later in the game, too. And they give a hundred tech points. This whole area is designed to feed you experience, gear, and tech points so that you are ready for the last dungeon. When we go to the Undersea Palace, it is a truly unique experience. And I know I've said that before with several dungeons before, but the Undersea Palace remains unique. It still does stuff that none of the other dungeons did before. Right up to and including the wonderful beam down into the ocean and the brief glimpse of it under the waves. This and, and the wonderful, powerful music. All of the previous songs, I haven't really talked about the music much, but in Magus's Lair, there was the quiet foreboding. In Toronto Lair, it was big and bombastic. Here, this sounds like a Last Dungeon song. Like, there's a certain quality to it, a certain level of epicness and almost desperate, you know, desperation in, in, a, in a really good Last Dungeon song. And there, that is definitely present here. There's also a pseudo-ethereal quality to it. The design of the place is wonderful, completely unique palette. Um, lots of enemy types that we haven't even seen before, which many of which use completely new strategies or tactics to them. This is the first time in the game the game actually discourages you from using AoEs, which by this point in the game you probably have at least several. And there's tons of enemies here, and there's tons of very good gear here. And this is, I'd, uh, I'm not actually sure of the exact numbers, but I do believe this is the second largest dungeon in the entire game, only surpassed by the Black Omen. They also share one other trait. In both dungeons, it is very difficult to avoid fights unless you are very specifically knowing what you're doing. And I'm sure that was a specific design choice in both aspects. The reason this is so relevant is because this, in every way, builds up the Undersea Palace to be the last dungeon. And they already have the, the false fake-out of Magus's lair in order to help establish this. Because they already did the fake-out, so they wouldn't do a second fake-out, right? This one cat caught a lot more people back in the day. I don't know about you guys, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one as ever, but I know several people who were caught by the Undersea Palace thinking it was the last dungeon, and thinking that this was actually the conclusion of the game right here. It's even building up to a fight with Lavos, you know? Going after the Queen and the Mammon Machine and all that fun stuff. Oh yeah, there's also lots of bosses, I forgot about that. But anyways, we go through this whole thing, 
And we go, uh, we we find out that Shala is basically being forced and coerced into this. The prophet, who is an idiot, is just standing by letting all this happen because he really wants Lavos to show up. I find it funny because if the prophet, Magus, had actually decided at any point in time to really intervene, he probably could have. He is very strong. Remember, Magus is still full power at this point in time. He waits, however, because he wants Lavos to be summoned because he wants to kill Lavos. <laughs> As a result of him allowing Lavos to be summoned, Lavos then is summoned and then sends him back into time. Not the current him, the past him, Janus. The Lavos also sends off the three uh, sages. And as I mentioned before, this is the brilliance of the, of the timeline of the sages' story arc, because all three sages go to places that make perfect sense, and there's four people going through time. So Janus ends up in 600 AD and becomes Magus. Uh, Melkor ends up in 1000 AD and, and befriends the Medina villagers. Um, Balthazar ends up in 2300 AD and has to work with the technology. Kind of coincidental, if I might be so bold, because Balthazar is uniquely suited to understand that technology. And then, of course, Gaspar ends up at the end of time and is thus perfectly positioned to help us much later in the game. All of this is very clearly by design in-universe. And this is all due to the nature of the time travel that's been used up until this point in time. Now, I want to, I want to save talking about that just really quick, because then we have this really weird denouement. Now, denouement, excuse me. Because what happens is Lavos is summoned and beats the ever-living crap out of the party. Some people have actually pointed out that when you fight Lavos here, he has the same stats in the end of the game. That's actually not true. This Lavos is actually the hardest version of Lavos. He has higher general stats, his attacks do more damage, and he has a different attack pattern. This is a completely unique Lavos fight, and he is never stronger than this in the entire game. So, now, a lot of that's just raw damage. There's actually no real complexity to this fight. He, is, he just hits you like crazy, and he has tons of health. You can beat him. It is possible. Generally requires a new game plus. Or cheats. But, anyways, so having gotten to this point in time, you know, you fight Lavos, you lose. And then Magus decides to fight Lavos, and he loses. And there's a line which is barely emphasized in the SNES version, but helps to, to explain things later on. Lavos actually drains some of the power out of Magus. See, one of the interesting things here is that Lavos himself is obviously mentioned to be a source of magical energy. And magical energy is also emphasized to have never really existed prior to Lavos's inclusion. Thus, we learn that magic itself, itself is literally an alien concept on this world. That there is natural abilities, like the telekinesis that Oslo is using, but that's a different uh, tr talent tree, if you will. It's a different method of progression. Magic, real magic, is something that only comes from Lavos. And thus, the, uh, the, the whole reason that this new era of people has been prospering and growing is because they've been slowly draining Lavos's abilities. It is, however, made very clear that Lavos has been, whether sentient and sapient or otherwise, it's actually very debatable, uh, been manipulating them through that connection, through that pipeline into the people of Zeal. And when the Mammon machine was created, which more directly connects Lavos to the actual instrumentation of how the, uh, the kingdom of Zeal functions, well, that's the end of that at that point. <laughs> they have officially lost their ability to be separate, separate and segregate from Lavos. Indeed, if Lavos was somehow winked out of existence, the kingdom of Zeal wouldn't just fall, as it does. All of its people would lose their ability to function. Their entire society would break down. They probably wouldn't even have the ability to make food happen. So, 
this uh, this innate magic thing, it makes sense then, getting back to where I started this with, that Lavos has the ability to pull magic out of someone. In fact, if anything, it's a little weird that he never does it when he actually fights us, because all of our magic kind of comes from Lavos too, by virtue of Specchio, but I digress. So he drains all of Magus's magic. Now, that's also relevant for one other reason, because Magus can join your party, can, as an optional, join your party after this point in time. And when he joins you, he is a lot weaker than when you fought him back in Magus's lair. However, if you level him up appropriately, he will actually become stronger than when you fought him in Magus's lair. Which makes sense, because his magic has been drained out of him, but he is retraining himself and rebuilding his power, just like we do, and thus becomes stronger than ever before. I like that. This is also in Chrono Dice. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think Chrono should have stayed dead. I understand why they didn't do that. I really do. In fact, it, there's some reports saying that was the original uh, idea. I've never actually been able to find anything to confirm that. Rather, the original report I saw is that Chrono would die and that we would go recruit a younger version of Chrono to join us in, our, in the last few bits of the game and then return him to his timeline where he would then eventually die. So it's a little bit different. I think Chrono should have just stayed dead. I think Chrono's death really does open up possibilities storytelling-wise, and also, to be bold, was a very brave and bold move. Something that RPGs didn't really do, and frankly, still don't really do. The idea of taking you and killing you, because... Chrono is an avatar character. He has no characterization. The only thing that Chrono is, is whatever you mentally think of him. He's a complete blank sheet. And killing off that kind of a character and leaving you with only those who are, who are left behind forces you to admit the idea that you have to basically sacrifice your avatar to have a chance of defeating Lavos, which further emphasizes the threat of Lavos and adds more poignancy to the rest of the game. Chrono's death is also brilliantly done from an artistic perspective. But this is when we get into some debatables with time travel, which I'm still building up to, I swear. Having done this, this is the darkest moment of the game. It is no surprise, then, that the very next thing is another breather episode. Now, it may not seem like it, but if you really sit back and analyze it, uh, the Blackwing is, or the Blackbird, excuse me, is definitely a breather episode. There are two bosses, one of which is impossible to lose against, and one of which is a joke to defeat. Um, that would be the Gollum boss and Dalton, respectively. Both of them are designed to make them look like they're harder than they are, because Dalton has been built up for quite some time at this point in time, and also is like, ha-ha, I should use this great power, and he has the same kind of mechanic as most of the Gollums, but all of his spells hit for far less than, for example, even the Gollum twins. The Gollum boss, of course, is like, I'm going to build up to this great big spell. You're going to be just, you're going to be screwed. And we've seen that kind of countdown mechanic before with the Black Toronto. So you are encouraged to waste all your effort and resources on him when an actual boss is coming afterwards. And the dungeon is, is almost a joke in terms of difficulty. All of the enemies there are very, very easy and can be killed in literally one hit, even at level without, you know, at the orange line. And getting back your stuff, I mean, the place is kind of a maze. But it isn't really much of a maze, because there's only a, there's not that many places you can go to, and there's not really a lot in the way of you going to any given location. The funniest pl part about the Blackbird, in my opinion, is that getting all your stuff back is actually optional. You can skip getting back everything except for the base gear requirements. Anyways, so after this very easy dungeon, which is more comedic than anything else, I mean, Dalton's like, oh, I am new, the, the new king. <laughs> 
And uh, he even breaks the fourth wall. That's how much this is a communicating. This zigs, in my opinion, where the sewer level way back in 2300 zagged. Because this actually manages to be humorous and a break thing in a way that kind of flows better with the story rather than just being total nonsense. Especially the part where it's like, no, 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 change the music, change the music. Ah, that's much better. The Arrow Dalton Imperial. So you crush him, and you get, now we have the wings of time. For real. We actually have the Epoch. I know it's pronounced epic, I don't care. Um, so we now we have the Epoch, and now we have uh, a flying airship. And this is the freedom point. Now, for those of you who have never actually seen me really discuss and analyze uh, RPGs, which I've done many times, actually, the freedom point is a very critical point of any given RPG. Now, not every RPG has a definitive freedom point. Some have layers of freedom points, kind of like a Metroid game. But most RPGs do have, like, one definitive BAM! This is the point at which you can go do basically everything. There's very little restraining you from going and going to all places and going to all interactions and doing all quests and getting all bosses and getting all equipment, etc. That's usually the freedom point. And in most RPGs, the freedom point comes along when you get an airship. Yeah, right? Uh, FF6, rather famously, actually has two freedom points. One when you get the airship, and one when you get the airship very early on to the world of ruin. The freedom point of when you get the epoch is an extremely important part of the story, too. But before I get into that, the first thing they show you is the Black Omen entering. Now, this is very important because this is the first time, definitively, that time really has changed and altered. With the sole possible exception of the moral thing, which I've already kind of explained away, uh, this is the time in which we see time really being altered demonstrably and noticeably in a way that can't be, can't be argued around. Now I'd like to talk about time travel. Pardon me. Actually, before I talk about time travel... Well, no, let's talk about time travel. Let's do it. Let's just finally get into it. With a couple of plot holes and niggles here and there, everything up until you going back to 12,000 BC and the destruction of Zeal the deaths of all those people, and the, and the fall of it, and all of that, all of it has been type 1 time travel. Now, I know not everyone has heard me talk about the three types of time travel, so let's go over them really quick here. Type 1 time travel is what I call time as a linear line. In other words, any time travel you do, you always did. There's no altering the timeline, there's no multiple timelines, there's a single linear line, and anything you do always has been done and always will be done. Make sense? Thus, you are more completing time rather than changing time. Type 2 time travel is similar, but with one key distinction. It is still a singular timeline. There is just one aspect of time. However, if you go back and change things, this timeline is now radically altered henceforth. Thus, time is a malleable line, is the second type of time travel. The third type of time travel is multi multiverses. There's, every time you change history, another, another timeline splits off. I don't like Type 3 time travel. <laughs> Chrono Cross, Star Trek. Anyways, <clears throat> although Star Trek likes to play fast and loose with which type of time travel it uses because it's Star Trek and it doesn't know the word continuity. But anyways, so up until this point, all the time travel we've been doing is Type 1. Now, what I find most interesting about this is this is one of the very, very, very few settings that has both Type 1 and Type 2 time travel in a way that makes sense. Usually, these rules are concrete and setting-wide. You have type 1 time travel because all time travel has always been done, because time travel is, is that as a concept. However, here, we have two ways of time traveling. We have the portals, the gateways, which we've been using up until point, this point in time, and then we have the epoch. 
And both of these are very, very different in their execution and approach. Every bit of time travel that is type 1 has been something that has basically been, and I already referenced this earlier, a guided tour by the entity or whatever that has been showcasing us to make sure that we see all these events and to make sure all these events happen in the way they do. There is a lot of evidence that all of the time travel we do in the first chunk of the game has always happened. The most obvious ones being the, the Toronto layer with Lavos, and the, the very definitively obvious one is when the Prophet goes back. Magus goes back and remembers all these events that he's already been through because he was already Janus, right? All of this is, is time completing itself. And, of course, all of this concludes with tragedy. Basically, what, if you could think about it, in many ways, once you have the Epoch, the story has technically ended. Because everything, at that point in time, we now know the full breadth of the history of this world. It concluded in the middle, but like any good time travel story, that middle is actually the conclusive point of the story. Because we know everything that happens after this point. Lavos burrows back down, and then, you know, events happen. We, we move forward for a little bit. And then uh, Magus, uh, Magus summons Lavos back up in, in six, uh, 600 AD, fails to actually do anything with him. Lavos is, starts arising over the next, like, two centuries, or not two centuries, like, 12 century, 14 century, excuse me, and then erupts, and then 2300 AD happens, right? But now that we have the wings of, 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 the, of the different type of time travel, now we start to see the timeline actually being altered, and the Black Omen is the definitive example of that. Because now the Black Omen is in the future, even though it never was before. And this is why I mentioned how interesting it is that we go back to 12,000 BC in the Epoch, the other type of time travel. Because from now on, as we fly around with the Epoch, everything we do with the Epoch will actually change history. And this also, of course, functions in a meta sense. Because up until now, Chrono Trigger has been a very linear game, an aggressively linear game. Other than the fact that you have lots of different options for how to see different, different cutscenes, for the most part, uh, not even for the most part, you have been on rails. The moment you get that airship, you can do whatever. You can, it, it's, it's pretty much the exact same as the Freedom Point in FF6, like I mentioned earlier. You can go fight the last boss right now, if you wanted to. You can go do side quests in any order right now. This Freedom Point is so important. Because now, for the first time, time travel is in your hands, the player's hands, and, in-universe, is in the party member's hands. For the first time, they are no longer at the whims of this gateway thing. I mentioned the asymmetrical time thing earlier. If this entity is truly giving this kind of guided tour of time, then what we are seeing is a circumstance by which, if you... Um, it, the asymmetrical time thing makes sense, basically, because it would always send you to the same time period at the time at which you needed to be there, to be part of history, like you always were. Make sense? Now, I know there are some plot holes with this, and I know there's some exceptions with this, but there is no denying that there's a very deliberate intent of this game to differentiate the first half of the game and the last half of the game. There's a lot of interesting factoids about the last half of the game. Um, every dungeon and interaction and request in the last half of the game is very, very dense. Tons of enemies, encounters, dialogue, huge amount of story and exposition that is all con condensed into a very small period of time. And all of them are skippable, completely skippable, as I mentioned earlier, and all of them can be done in any order, as I mentioned earlier. You can even do part of one and then go do part of another if you're having trouble with one particular area. All of these also give 
all of the gear. At this point in time, all of the actual best gear in the game is now available to you in one fashion or another. And you can actually go around, ooh, excuse me, go around and start really gearing yourself up and getting ready for the real fight against Lavos. There is one flaw in all of this, and that's the resurrection of Chrono. Because, see, the thing is, later on, Gasper will literally give you basically a pseudo-guide into what you can go do. Now, in the SNES version, that was actually badly translated and thus literally misleading. However, in the, uh, the, the properly translated versions, you get a lot more clear indication of what you can do and where and why. And, there's, and if you talk to some of your own party members, they will even give you a tiny little insight into quests that are relevant to them throughout the course of the remainder of the game. All of that is interrupted by the resurrection of Chrono, which the game very clearly wants you to do next. Now, you don't have to. Again, you do have total freedom at this point. But if you're playing the game for the first time, you don't know that. And the only thing you know is that Gasper's like, hey, you should go resurrect Chrono. And that's all he'll talk about until you go do it. I don't actually have much to say about the resurrection of Chrono or, or, or Death Peak. The Death Peak itself is a weirdly designed dungeon and the best experience in the entire game. <laughs> that's where I get 99. Um... One of these days I have to actually hit 99 in my Steam game and make actually a, a perfect save in my Steam game. But yeah, that's ever going to happen. I don't have time for that. Anyways, I still need to do that for FF10 and FF10 too as well. And like a bunch of other games. Moving on. Moving on. So, you uh, you go through Death Peak. You fight really, really basic bosses. Um, lots of bosses though. There's not actually that many enemy encounters on Death Peak. But there are multiple bosses as you go up. This is again part of the design of the new dungeon thing. So that's actually going to be normal for most dungeons going forward. And having done so, you then go and you resurrect Chrono. Now, this is the one part of time travel that is debatable. But I think it works because it is literally at the apex of the two types of time travel. This could be type 1 or type 2 time travel. It is uncertain. And given the method by which you go back into the frozen moment of time during the Battle of Lavos, which is to say, you know, the Eclipse and the Time Egg, it's possible that since you're not using Epoch here, this is still type 1 time travel. That Chrono never died to Lavos, that it was always his doll. That is a very feasible and definitely possible thing. Of course, the alternative idea is that you actually go back and alter time, because there's no way to tell if you altered it or didn't. One way or another, a Chrono, something that looked a lot like Chrono, died in front of Lavos, and Chrono was actually pulled back into the present of 2300 AD. So both methods of time travel apply here equally. Now, I, I want to mention one other thing really quick before I move forward. I mentioned the, the two types of time travel. Uh, some players, have, some viewers have pointed out when I was streaming this game last, that the two types of time travel don't quite line up, because a player doesn't have to do all of that. To which I say, yes, that's the point. Because the choice of time travel is now in the player's hands, the player is more or less deciding canon and deciding what always is or always will be canon based on their interactions. The impetus is now completely on the player rather than the game. You are off the rails, more or less completely. Anyways. So you can decide that Chrono died and never resurrect him, and you get a different ending if, if you do that, too. So we're going to kind of barrel roll through the rest of this stuff because there's, I don't have a lot to say. I'm going to uh, discuss these uh, side quests in the order I usually do them and did them this time around. First thing I hit is Ozzy's Fort. This is basically the last little tidbit of characterization we get from Magus, which we've really got most of his characterization back in 12,000 BC. But we find here that he was never on board with this whole death to the humans thing, and he was never particularly involved in that. It was always Ozzy's idea. And despite this, Ozzy remains a comedic figure. I still don't understand this. 
he is literally genocidal, and he's like, <laughs> and the whole Ozzy's Fort is basically one big joke with a relatively easy boss fight at the end. And that's it. <laughs> you can also get the best gear in the game from Magus right here, uh, assuming you know where it is. It's actually one of the only times in the entire game there's literally a hidden passage like this. And, of course, Ozzy is defeat defeated by a kitten which alters how Medina is. This is also when we see the second phase of Medina, when, when there's an Aussie statue and everyone's like, oh, hail Aussie, hail Aussie. This implies to us that Aussie was able to raise up the, the mystics, or excuse me, the fiends within his little island and build his own little group of fiends, but was never able to actually find the strength, either in terms of material or manpower or military or just leadership, to actually do anything about his war against the humans. So he just kind of squatted there and built his own little fiefdom. And each of his descendants has been, you know, following on the fame of that ever since. Or, after you defeat him, Medina is filled with a bunch of monsters who get along with people just fine. Something that was hinted at, if you remember, at the very beginning of the game, with little uh, Kilwala or whatever, which was playing at the piano. <sighs> so then we get to the Genodome. Now, this is a medium-sized dungeon with a fairly large number of gimmicks, but also is probably the overall darkest of the various side quests. It's a nice thing to go through immediately after, you know, seeing the <laughs> of Ozzy's fort. This place, of course, gives us the actual backstory for Robo and his true purpose as Prometheus. And Atropos, which I find funny, by the way, since Atropos was the one about, you know, inevitability, but anyways... We finally find an explanation for what the hell's been going on, and the implications of the fact that the humans in the 2300 AD might have actually been able to endure the Day of Lavos and keep going forward, if not for the mother brain. This is one of the things that I don't see talked about all that often, the idea that humanity might have been able to actually make something of itself in this new, slightly blasted out world, if not for the fact that there was an entire AI whose entire purpose was trying to wipe them out on a regular basis. This is also, by the way, where there's this scene that I will never forget, and I've forced my viewers to watch it every time I've streamed this game, where you go into a con the thing and there's this conveyor belt, and there's a person on the conveyor belt, and they get led off camera, and you hear this really high-pitched, kind of blood-curdling scream, and then you just see a little sparkle come out the other end. We never really find out exactly what these robots are doing with these people, but they are definitely processing them. And the implication is that they've been doing this for a long time. What do you think they're processing them into? Anyway, so Prometheus and Atropos interact. We find out that uh, Mother Brain flat out reprogrammed Atropos, and, you know, she is fixed and resolved after Prometheus defeats her solo. One of the more difficult fights in the game, in my opinion, especially if you're not ready for it. And again, kind of a unique design aspect. And then we go fight the Mother Brain, which is also unique in the fact that if you defeat her too easily, she becomes too hard. But otherwise, Mother Brain is a relatively easy fight. And once you shut down the factory, the processing stops and the, the psychotic robot stops. Now, this is interesting in its own right. Because one of the things that has been mentioned before is the idea that with the removal of Genodome and the overseer of the of the mother AI, the mother brain AI, it is it, it is within possibility that humanity might be able to recover. The only way that could ever happen is if someone were to be able to grant them some of the technology or ability to be able to actually have arable land again in this new hellscape, and I'm not even sure that's possible. 
unless someone were, I don't know, to take the epoch and go grab a whole bunch of technology and information, seeds and food and bring it to the future. I don't know. I, I definitely would never do a headcanon about it. Can I take a quick segue really quick here? Chrono Trigger was significant to my life in one very strange way. It was my introduction to fan fiction. I suppose I had always understood the idea of fan fiction because I always had my own headcanon and my own head stories that I wrote back for the Mega Man games back in the NES era. But this is the first time I discovered that fan fiction was a thing that other people did because... I saw more fan fiction about Chrono Trigger than anything else back in the late 90s. It was a recurring thing for multiple years. There were huge uh, uh, mail, uh, oh god, what were they called? Mailing lists? Where everyone, you know, you emailed the list and it emailed to everyone. And, uh, you know, proto uh, IRC boards where everyone would just constantly talk about, this is the story idea I have for... Uh, Chrono Trigger. I actually still to this day remember several fanfics I read for Chrono Trigger. Uh, many of which were actually really interesting, and almost all of which were about Shala. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, I just thought I'd mention it. <laughs> no, none of those kind of fanfics. I mean, just like, she was a major character in them. There was one where she found out the truth about who Magus was, and she was pissed. Anyways. So... Then we go to Fiona's quest. Now, Fiona's quest is probably the hardest overall of the quests. It, I'd call it the gear check, but it's actually more like the strategy check. In order to do the Fiona quest, you have to go into this little underground desert area, which is absolutely swimming in enemies. There is no other section of the entire game that has more enemies per square foot than that section. And then you go down and fight the Retinite, which is arguably one of the most difficult bosses in the game. Because Retinite has a very specific strategy to him, which involves you having to use water damage constantly, having to heal regularly, having to keep your MP up, and having to use magic damage and physical damage. And basically, juggling all of this. This is why I call it a strategy check. The Retinite is there to say, alright, you've learned your lessons, right? Because in many ways, in my opinion, Retinite is actually the pinnacle boss of the entire game. Lavos is harder, but mostly due to the nature of how he uses his mechanics. But there's no more complex fight in all of the game than the Retinite. It's, it's the final exam of all of the other boss tactics and fight tactics that have been used in the entire game up to this point in time. Now once you take it out, this is another very demonstrable, very obvious example of Type 2 time travel. Because in addition to the fact that the forest is there now, and it very clearly wasn't, any time you go back to 600 AD, Robo is out there tilling the fields. This is also the first time that they acknowledge how useful time travel is when you are not a standard human. If you are a robot that can exist for 400 years and actually do something about that. And then we get a really wonderful cutscene where we learn about the Entity. Now, people have debated the nature of who or what the Entity is for some time. It's pretty clear now, with the advantage of hindsight and interviews and development materials, that the Entity was supposed to be the planet. It kind of an FF7-y kind of a thing. The idea of the planet consciousness, or the planet life stream, or whatever you want to call it. I know a lot of people back in the day who presumed the entity was actually Shala. Some people thought it was Lavos. Some people thought it was a combination of Shala and Lavos. Make of that what you will. There's, there's plenty of different ways that can be thought of, and that's up to you to give your opinion. I would, as ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts on to what the entity actually is. However, whatever it is, whether it's the planet... Lavos, Shala, or Shala and Lavos, or something else entirely. There is no denying that the entity is something that has access to this time travel thing and has, as is mentioned in-game, very deliberately been guiding our, our path up to when we got the Epoch. All of that was clearly planned out and deliberately done by the entity. Again, 
lending credence to my earlier comments about the Type 1 time travel theory. Then we have what is probably the only real characterization for Luca. Now, we've had a little bit for her, a little tidbits here and there. But we find out one of the reasons she is so, she is so driven to actually become the technologist that she is, to learn how to use and understand technology. And what I love about that is no matter what you choose, she goes on the same path for a reason that makes sense. This is, again, very clearly and obviously type 2 time travel, because Lara was actually, you know, crippled at the very beginning of the game and has been crippled ever since. There's actually a side cutscene you can get from when you get back from Medina Village from your first visit to 2300 AD, where Tabin actually goes up and says, hey... Here's the wages we got today, and I got you something just to make you feel better, right? And thus, you know, she is crippled. We get this. We find out why she was crippled. She ended up getting stuck in a machine that Tabin had invented, and it... I'm sorry. For, for those of you who don't know me, I've actually been run over by a car before in my life. And uh, I actually still to this day have a big old titanium rod in my left leg as a consequence of that. I can't even imagine... Oh, I can. That's, that's actually the problem. I can completely imagine what it's like to have your legs caught in that kind of a grinder. So she loses the, loose, the use of her legs. Now, it's obvious that that's why Luca tried so hard to understand and learn technology. To make sure that, that she can fix this and, and ensure that this kind of thing never happens again. But the funny thing is, you can, as Luca, intervene in that and change that and make it so that that incident never happened. And then you can go and read your own diary entries which say, I think I understand technology a lot better now. I'm going to learn as much as I can about it to make sure accidents like this never happen again. So one way or another, Luca is still driven on the path she is. Now, this is probably the one crux point when it comes to time travel in this, because this is obviously type 2 time travel, and yet it's not being done with the epoch, it's being done with a portal. The one and only re thing I have to say about this is that it's very clear that this is an unusual portal. The, the sound effects that are playing for it are different, the approach to it and its time travel is very different, and opens without even the use of a gate key, and it's red. I think this is specifically the entity, whatever it is, giving her this one chance to try and change one of the most crucial aspects of her life, to fix her, her mother's legs. That's my take on it. As an aside, this would mean, hypothetically, that the entity has always had the ability to affect Type 2 time travel, and hasn't been because it needed, it needed us to understand and grow to the point where we could stop Lavos. Make sense? In other words, the idea here is that not that the gateways themselves are limited to Type 1 time travel, but they were specifically guided to be Type 1 time travel. Anyways, so after that wonderful, amazing scene, um, we, we go to another quest, which is the Sunstone. Now, first we go fight the Son of Sun, which I have to admit bugged the crap out of me when I first fought him. Um, he's actually really, really easy if you have fire-absorbent gear, because you can just eat whatever counterattacks he does. Flare is pure fire damage, so if you've got fire absorption, you're good. Um, so the Son of Sun is a complete gimmick fight, and once you figure out the gimmick, very easy. Once you have bypassed that gimmick and are fighting him properly, you get the Sunstone, and it's like, oh, well, this needs to absorb the power of the Sun. This is one of the other small things that bugs me. If you go from 65 million or whatever to 12,000, the Sunstone increments by like one level. If you go from four, uh, 600 AD to 1000 AD, which is 400 years, it increments one level. 
that always kind of bugged me for some reason. I, I, I mean, I know that the sun wasn't there for part of history, but goddamn, do we really need to go for gabrillions of years and then plus a, like a, a, a pittance in the pool in order to finish things thing off? Anyways, anyways. This is also when the mayor comes in. You remember him, right? The guy I mentioned way back at the beginning. And you have to go do the jerky thing. There's this nice little side quest that you might have already done, because you can do it at any time as soon as you get the epoch. Uh, I think you can do it earlier than that, actually. No, no, it's when you get the epoch, I'm right. Where you can go buy the jerky, which was also at the very beginning, for very expensive, go back to 680, give it to her for free, or sell it to her for an extremely minor uh, raise in price. Now, that's important. I think they did that so that you would be more inclined to give it, because 100 GP, I mean, who cares, right? That's nothing, even at this point in the game. So you just give it to her. And then she mentions, oh, my children are going to be raised with a proper sense of ethics. And then we get back to the present, where we find out that the mayor, who was a jackass, again, beginning of the game, is now a really cool guy. And he just gives you the sunstone, because he happened to fall across it. One of the only things that's never explained, and always kind of bugged me, there's two things about bugs me about the sunstone quest arc, is that they never explain how the sunstone got from that area to this mayor. I always like to think that is somewhere along the line, probably with Toma, if I'm being honest, or one of his descendants, there was some adventurer who went out to the place and found the Sunstone and basically sold it to the nearest rich guy, which happened to be the mayor or the mayor's father or whatever. And it's just been in the family until we show up and like, hey, could we please have that? You know, something like that. Um, so with the Sunstone, we have this and we can go after the Rainbow Shell, which is te it's technically three quests here. So I'm kind of doing this in a weird order. But I go get the Rainbow Shell and Toma, and I feel so bad for the Reptites. We get the idea that the Reptites have been in hiding for all this time, that those that survived were forced underground, and have been living underground ever since. I kind of like that idea. The only thing I don't like about it is they never do anything with it. They're only here for this one side dungeon as part of a quest to get the Rainbow Shell and nothing else. But I do like most of the aspects of that dungeon, and you get some pretty good stuff in there, and everything in there is, of course weak to the usual things that reptites are. In fact, they are much weaker than most reptites usually would be, relatively speaking, given the power levels you're at right now. Once we procure the rainbow shell, we, we are like, okay, we need to do something with this. Let's take it back to 600 AD. And we ask them to procure the thing, and he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll totally make it a national treasure. Cool. We'll come back to that. Next thing I usually do is Cyrus's tomb. Cyrus's tomb is one of the weirdest uh, side quests in the game because it is extremely heavy on backtracking, but is absent most of the things that make backtracking irritating. Every I mentioned earlier the, the specific respawn thing and manually crafted encounters. Every encounter you fight in the tomb, in the past more specifically, is a, is a flagged encounter that will go away permanently once you kill it. And so you have to clear the place out in order to allow the people to work on it, and you pay a pittance of gold for them to work on it, and also I love the fact that you get the future tools to give to the past guy to repair the... whatever. So... Having, you know, getting this whole place repaired, getting some very good equipment. This is another place where you can get some of the best equipment of the game if you do the upgrade mechanic, which I haven't even talked about yet. Which is basically when you interact with something in the past, go to the present, and then pull it out and it is now upgraded from its previous state. Although in one case that upgrade's actually arguably worse. The moon armor is debatably worse than the nova armor. The moon armor has magic defense on it, which is nice, but at a certain level your magic defense actually caps. By contrast, Nova Armor allows you to ignore status effects, which is incredibly useful. Anyways, this is when we get Glenn's conclusion to his story arc. This is when Glenn... Well, I'd say he forgives himself. To be completely blunt, though, Glenn never really forgave himself. What actually happens is that Cyrus forgives him. Cyrus's ghost actually manifests itself and says, Glenn, 
dude, you have done so much for me. And he ba- it basically says that Glenn has succeeded in every way that Cyrus didn't. And he is happy and safe and thankful, and he can pass on in peace now that Glenn has proven that he is this great hero that Cyrus was never able to be. Thus Cyrus is able to rest free, and the tomb becomes a, a mausoleum of, of grandeur, and this place where they all tell about the great story of Cyrus the Great and his wonderful friend Glenn, and that just kind of changes the history books in that significant way. But mostly, Frog himself finally has his concluding uh, character arc. He finally accepts that he actually is a hero and embraces that fully. This is also when we get the upgrade of Mazmune, which is also his best weapon in the game, even better than the Brave Sword, which we got a lot earlier. Now, I know that was kind of a weird segue, but the, the very last quest I always do is Marl's. Marl's quest is a natural byproduct of both the Sunstone and the Rainbow Shell. In fact, you can't even start Marl's quest unless you've done the Rainbow Shell. All this time, the last time we were in Guardia Castle was in Chapter 1, what I consider Chapter 1 of the game, all the way back when we were still fleeing from the prison and just after the trial, right before we go to 2300 AD for the first time. We finally, finally, finally are allowed to go back there. And if we bring Marl, the Chancellor interacts with her and says, and basically starts sowing the seeds of how incredibly messed up her dad is. It is, of course, all a lie, and the game makes it very obvious that's a lie. As I mentioned earlier, it's debatable whether Yakra the 13th was actually there or not in the earlier sections. However, there is absolutely no denying that this is Yakra the 13th. This, to me, really feels like the concluding story arc of the game, for several reasons. As I have said several times before, they do unique things here. They actually use different scene transitions. They use the Undersea Palace song, for God's sakes. And this whole thing has a feeling of epic and conclusion. It also ends the game basically where the game began, with Guardia, Yakra, Marl, and the King. And it just concludes it in that... It's a wonderful bookend, is what I'm trying to say. And the whole thing, despite being a joke, because there is no difficulty in almost all of this, you're literally fighting the same exact enemies that you were fighting all the way back in Minoria Cathedral like 15 hours ago. So even if you're doing a low-level run, you are crushing these guys. In the only actual significant fight at all is Yakra the 13th, and frankly, he is actually a very easy fight. The only significances he has is he has a lot more health, and he has his one super nuke attack, a wipe attack, basically. That's it. And I love this conclusion of the game. It really feels like a capstone to the game in many ways. And that's why I always do it last. It even ends Marl's character arc, where she finally is able to accept that her dad isn't actually awful or horrible. That he's just a king. He's not a good dad, but he's been trying to do the best he can ever since his wife passed away. And he really, you get the impression this guy has no idea how to be a father. But you do get the impression that he cares. So, we are finally, after the conclusion of this, for the first time in the entire game, welcome to just wander around and be open in, you know, the 1000 AD Guardia Castle. And Marl finally accepts her, her father and admits that she loves him and he loves her. And it's this great scene, and I love it. I'm actually tearing up just a bit, just thinking about it. It's one of the better character moments in the entire game. Marl and Frog get some really good character moments in this game. Both of the water people. The only thing after this is the omen. 
which is completely optional in, in keeping with the trend of the second act. You can just take the bucket, you can just ram the epoch into him, or you can do the omen. The omen is the last dungeon, the actual last dungeon this time. Uh, this is when you really have the conclusion of all of the uh, gameplay stuff I've been talking about this entire time, with only a couple of exceptions. The mobs here are brutal. They hit harder than anything else. They have more defenses and more health than anything else. They're also the most lucrative. You can steal in the best stuff in the game, best accessories, but you can get a of tags, and you can buy all of the best, or excuse me, uh, steal all the best equipment in the game from these enemies and from these bosses. They all tend to have some of their own little gimmicks. Some of those gimmicks are very brutal. You also can't skip almost any of these fights. Even with task timing, it is very difficult to bypass most of these encounters. The only weird thing about this place is the approach to bosses. Basically, all of the bosses here are actually very easy and very simple. There's the mutants, which are extremely linear. They basically have one mechanic, and that's it. There's the the fight against the, the, the baby Lavos, which is a joke. Although I do want to talk about the baby Lavos thing for a second, because the baby Lavos enters through a time portal, which is something that's never actually shown elsewhere in the entire game. There has been a lot of theory crafting that this baby Lavos is actually this Lavos, or this Lavos' immediate son, or something like that. I myself have speculated on this before. I like to think that what's happening here is that this is basically the Lavos that was going to leave the planet. The, the Lavos' spawn that was all set to go ahead and go off and start journeying into other planets and ended up being called here instead. I like that idea because A, it would make this basically the proto, you know, the Lavos 2 more than the other spawns. This is the big spawn, the one that was ready to go. And thus our defeat of it is more significant. And it also means we saved other worlds from a terrible fate, which also feels kind of significant. There's other ways you could look at this, and if we include Chrono Cross in this, it's pretty obvious what this thing is. But, moving along. <clears throat> so, uh, then we fight Queen Zeal the first time. Now, Queen Zeal the first time is... I, I can't decide if I like or hate the approach to the design of that fight. Because she is entirely a fake-out boss. She is designed to freak out the player, especially if the player doesn't know what's coming, and try to waste time, uh, F, excuse me, try to waste MP and time in terms of turns and resources in terms of items in order to defeat her when she's actually incredibly easy. You know, she has their ability to push you to one health and all that and a couple of other status effect things, and she's otherwise very, very much a joke. Then we fight Queen Zeal again. Now this one's brutal, and also basically a gotcha in the same way the previous one. It's designed to trick the player, just like the first Zeal was. Because she's a hand-hand-face bo boss. And we've been seeing these since the Guardian, all the way back in our first jaunt to 2300 AD. This is a relatively common boss type, so it's like, okay, kill the hand, kill the hand, kill her. No, 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 no. You need to completely ignore the hands, except to steal from them. You can get some good stuff from them. And then just kill the face. And then we have to fight the Mammon Machine, which is magic-resistant, magic-immune only, or magic hittable, vulnerable only, and is also probably the easiest of all these bosses. And then you fight Lavos. This is a good time to talk about uh, the Queen, because this is the only real characterization we ever get for Queen Zeal. And I have a question for you. Do you think that at this point in time there is a Queen Zeal? Or do you think that all that is left is literally a puppet which is being controlled completely by Lavos? The idea here is it changes kind of the dynamic, because Queen Zeal is either you know someone who is completely lost and insane and evil, or... Queen Zeal doesn't exist at all. Instead, all we're talking to is Lavos. 
Thus, this would give some degree of sentience and sapience qualities to Lavos, which some people disagree on and some people don't, and we don't really know the full totality of it because there's not a lot of information on that, not counting Chrono Cross. Because I know the flame actually talks to you in Chrono Cross. So, and unfortunately, that's all the real characterization we get from her. There's always been this sort of implication that her kingdom was kind of falling and faltering and having problems, which is why she forced the situation where she wanted to start the Mammon Machine Project and start drawing upon the energy of, uh, of Lavos, since the traditional energy sources of the planet were failing them. And then having done so, basically got tw twisted by Lavos into being this puppet state one way or the other. But that's all we really get for her, I'm afraid. I always love bringing Magus to that fight, though. He's got a lot of interesting dialogue for her. And it's kind of a conclusion of his own character arc. This is him finally being able to say, I'm going to make up for all the garbage I've done by bringing you down and bringing Lavos down. Not for revenge, but for a better world. It's the only kind of redemption that Magus actually gets in the whole game, because he's still not exactly a good person. So the Lavos fights. There's actually a couple Lavos fights. There's the one you can fight where you just fight him. There's the one where you can completely skip it because you ram the Epoch into its shell. And then there's the one where you fight all of the different bosses that it's been analyzing. Now this is kind of weird. <laughs> From a game design perspective, it feels kind of lazy because you're literally refighting them with the same stats and everything. So when you fight the Dragon Tank, it's a joke. Thus, the only purpose this serves is, is to be a speed bump and for story purposes. Now, the story purposes thing is what I like about this, and that's the reason I'm willing to forgive this, because the whole idea here is that Lavos has been analyzing... They, they say this flat out later, Luca or Robo say this flat out later, but the whole idea here is that Lavos has been analyzing everything and taking in all of the knowledge and ideas and concepts and magic and DNA from all of the world this entire time. Parasite, excuse me. And thus has, is using this against us a sort of a knowledge repository in a parasitic form. And that is admittedly an interesting idea. I just wish they could have done it a little bit better since they literally explain that right after having the, the repeat boss fights. Whatever. Then you go in and then you fight the robot Lavos. Now, that's also one of my favorite songs of all time, the fight when you're fighting robot Lavos. But I stare at robot Lavos and all I have is questions. We never learn anything about that thing. Is it something that was artificially built? Did he, it, build that thing? Was it something that is, is this like, are the Lavosians an actual race of people that are technologically advanced somewhere? That actually do this kind of a thing on a regular basis? I mean, we see Lavos spawn, they look like shells and things. They look like a mini Lavos. There's no robot thing in there, so what the hell is this? And unfortunately, I have nothing but speculation here because we never have any information on what the hell is going on with this. If I was to be blunt, I would say that this is basically another boss fight to have another boss fight. Just like the last one is. Which brings me to the chicken, the space chicken. <laughs> now, these are all very well designed. Well, okay, the, the main Lavos fight, not the, re the boss refights, but the Lavos Lavos, Armored Lavos, and Core Lavos are actually very well designed fights. In fact, the very core, the very, 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 very final Lavos fight is one of the best designed fights in the entire game. And especially if you're low level, is actually really, really difficult. I love it from a game design perspective. Why the hell am I fighting a giant space chicken? In time, too. As you're fighting it, it basically summons you into the time waves and you fight it across time. Which is neat. 
It even has a cool mechanic, which is kind of a story thing, where it uses the abilities of the time era. You know, it basically, the idea is that it condenses the concepts and thoughts it's absorbed from any given era and uses that to attack you. That's cool, and I like that. But why is it there? Is this what all the Lavuses are really like? Now I'm going to share a fan theory. This is not my theory. Because I have my own theories on this one, which are terrible. And pure headcanon, which I'm not going to share with you. But I, I've heard this theory. Uh, the idea here is that the... Basically, we need to separate this into two separate entities. There's the Lavos core, and then there's the Lavos, Okay. So the idea here is that the Lavos core was an entity, an individual with cap capacity for sentience and sapience, which, as I mentioned earlier, is something that is debatable within Chrono Trigger, whether this creature is acting on pure animal instinct or if there is an actual degree of self-awareness and intelligence in there at a, at a human level. So, because remember, there is sentience and sapience before Lavos on this planet. Don't forget that. We had both the reptites and the humans. Anyways, so the idea here is that this entity, whatever it was, the Lavos core, for whatever reason, for whatever its motivations, decided to go ahead and build itself a giant armored shell, which he called Sin. I mean, which it called Lavos. You can kind of already see where this story idea is going. That this, the Lavos' core then is doing this kind of in a brainiac way. That it's deliberately going out to try and, and, and keep this cycle going of absorbing all the knowledge and ability of this planet and then send out more husks built in its own image, those other Lavoses then would have no core, like him. They, or her, or whatever. It? I don't know. Chicken? Um, the other Lavoses would just be more extensions of it, just like the outer shell of Lavos was an extension of the Lavos core. Now, I'm not sure I like this idea, if I'm being completely blunt. And... If I'm being horrifically, incredibly blunt, I don't like the idea of the Lavos core or the Lavos, the Mecha Larvos. I don't like either of them from a story perspective. It's one of the very few flaws in the story, in my opinion. It, it, it's not explained. It doesn't add anything. And in fact, in my opinion, it actively detracts from the very concept of Lavos, which is supposed to be one of those alien, inhuman powers. Something that is not just environmental, but catastrophic, right? This is the kind of thing that's supposed to symbolize more or less the, the best aspects of a meteor, a volcano, and a hurricane all wrapped into something that's actually manipulating people on top of all of that. The very presence of Lavos is so powerful that it can actually alter things around it. Oh yeah, fun quick side note, by the way. At one point in time, Robo or Luca can say, oh my god, Lavos is so powerful, it's generating gates. I don't buy that for a second. Given the whole entity-guided tour thing, I'm pretty sure that gate opened up in that moment because the entity knew we were there now and was ready for us to go forward to the concluding part of the earlier act of the game. Either way, we defeat Lavos. Now, this is... I've got a few more things to talk about. I, I swear I'm almost done, guys. I swear. First of all, this game has multiple endings. Now, everyone knows that, but what not everyone knows is that the base ending actually has multiple variants itself. Basically dependent on two variables. Whether or not Chrono was, was brought back at Death's Peak, and whether or not the Epoch is still there. This chain, this basically means for four permutations. Chrono dead, Epoch dead, Chrono, er, yeah, that's right, Chrono dead, Epoch dead, Chrono dead, have Epoch, Chrono alive, no Epoch, Chrono alive, have Epoch, right? And thus we see the four main permutations of the main ending. There's a few little details that can change based on what you did with Lucas' side quest, or if you decided to get any cat food for the cats. You know, little details like that. But that's the four main endings. And I love that because it, in many ways, concludes all of the acts of, of, your, of your choices 
and feels like you actually had some impact on the ending, and it's still a positive ending no matter how you approach that. So that's awesome. Then we have the other endings, which are the ones you were probably thinking of. Those endings are basically only obtainable on a New Game Plus, at least without cheats or, or foreknowledge. You have to beat the game at a very specific point in time, and, in, and, and there's like certain points in time at which you can do it. And once, once you defeat those endings, you get little side endings, just for fun. This is another and the final way in which New Game Plus is woven into the, sto into the design of the game that you have the option to see these little fun optional endings as a way to either flesh out characters or show time different timelines or just to have fun for a little bit. Silly little stuff. It's also the one and only time Chrono talks in the entire game is during one of these endings. Now, I also want to mention this because some of my own theory crafting comes from some of these endings. For example, one of the endings has Frog and Magus. Frog go and take on Magus's lair by himself. And he, at the very least, succeeds in reaching Magus. I mention that because this is another bit of evidence for my idea that Frog would have rescued Lean, regardless of our interaction, all the way back at Minoria Cathedral. Little stuff like that. We also get a little other tidbits of insight here and there. I like the timeline where Tata has to actually man up and become the real hero because for whatever reason something happened to Frog. I like the idea that we killed him and Chrono, uh, Luca, and Marl have become the new leaders of the mystics because we have magic, right? The idea being that we could become the leaders of them just like Magus did for the same reason. Little stuff like that. I do like a lot of these little side arcs and little stories. And I really like this game. There's a reason I've considered this my second favorite game of all time for many years, and why, to date, it's never really been challenged in that position. Oh, thank you, everyone, for giving me a chance to be able to go back through this game again. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. I've, I've got a headache, my throat's killing me, but it was, a, it was a joy and a treat to be able to discuss this with you guys. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I will see you next time, guys.